Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Music hath charms that nothing else has. Music hath charms, though it's classic or jazz. A symphony grand by Schubert or Brahms. A popular band or a uke beneath the palms. A melody in minor key can make the teardrop start. And then again, a glad refrain can cheer a lonely heart. Sweet harmony when there's someone in your arms. Oh, baby, it's then that music have charmed. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight we go back 91 years into the past, the furthest back yet to the dawn of a new era, where the new actors on screen can not only speak, but can sing, along with the melodious strains of their favorite hits cascading through the theaters. And it was the grand year of 1939 when Universal Pictures would unfurl their lavish musical review surrounding the legendary figure Paul Whiteman with King of Jazz. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. I'm really very proud of the boys. Some of them have been in the band for a great many years. Mike, how long have you been in the band? Eleven years, Mr. Whiteman. Goldie, how long have you been in the band? Six years, Pop. Six years, Pop. Ha! Pop. Been in the band so long, he's commenced to look like me. However, as I said before, I'm really very proud of the boys collectively, and I'd like to have you meet them individually. number for this kind of a production. What kind of a production is this? A super, 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 super special, special, special production. production. Well, I guess you're right. We should get out of the mud and reach for the higher and the finer things of life. The silver lining and the bluebird and life and love. Ah, oh, look at my doorstep. Look at my doorstep. Look at the bluebird. Look at the blackbird. Look at the good luck. Look at the bad luck. Look at the good luck and the bad luck there. Right. I never saw bluebirds mingle with blackbirds. I never saw bluebirds do all these backwards. Never knew good luck ever could perch with care. Now I overheard what, 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 those birdies talking. What, 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 
day, and I know just why they're acting this way. Maybe I better pick up. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. The whispers said on a title card would become loud and proud to full volume through the courtesy of the revolution that was sound on film. In their haste to adapt to this changing landscape, Universal Pictures joined the rest of Hollywood in staging great musicals that could begin their firm process in learning more about this medium while making a buck. Their entry into this small but important realm of musical reviews came with the desire to form a film around band leader Paul Whiteman. Until very recently, this film had been relegated to the dustbin of history due to neglect. But thanks to the work of enthusiasts, both on the elements of jazz and music in general and film enthusiasts, Yes, the film survives for the ballyhoo to break down, but we cannot discuss music on film without someone who might have some insight on the subject, so we have with us a familiar old face that you won't be able to see because this is sound and not picture. Uh, but anyway, you know him well. He has work on documentaries that stretch the world of ska, and now more recently, the world of punk rock with his upcoming documentary feature, The Blasting Room. He has also been unfortunately subjugated to terrible children on film through the courtesy of his two uh, recent episodes of The Shamley Silhouette. Please welcome back Aaron Pendergast. Hey Zach, thanks for having me. Oh, welcome back, buddy. You you have been away from uh, the microphone with me for far too long. It's a crime. It's a crime, uh, and I'm guilty of it. So uh, you may fire when ready, sir. <laughs> <laughs> now it has been a bit, and it's not entirely your fault. I certainly have been kind of caught up in a lot of things over the last, you know, few well, months. By so. by a couple of little things, uh, this is a wonderful way to segue, by a couple of little things, you mean the fact that you are producing and directing a documentary on punk rock and specifically a little known area where punk rock has blossomed here in Colorado. Um, it's called The Blasting Room. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that and uh, what drew you to the project? Yeah, for sure. Um the Blasting Room uh, studio, I grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, where the studio is located. And so it was one of those household names as I got older. You you know, you start to, start to realize like, oh, this album I really like was recorded right here in Fort Collins. And then uh, it, it just was a thing that was in the back of my mind for many years. And then one day I was uh, sitting at home trying to figure out what to make for my next movie after having failed spectacularly at my last one. And um, it kind of occurred to me that, oh, yeah, the studio's there, and I don't think anybody's made a movie about it yet. So, <laughs> And that's when you said, into mine. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I grew up listening to punk rock. I was uh, a big fan of the music and the scene, and so it, it just made sense to make this movie because I don't, like, that is, of all the connections to music I have, that's probably the strongest one. Okay. So... I, I don't know why I wouldn't uh, try to tackle that story other than if they just wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> so <laughs> just stand outside the gate with a sign going like, I'm destined to do this. <laughs> just hold my boom box over my head with uh, I'm the one playing. <laughs> you've got, you got a trench coat and everything. Your hair's cut <laughs> up to look like John Cusack. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's been a while since I've watched say anything. I guess I'll have to revisit that. Um, but I will say that, um, uh, I guess full disclosure to the audience, this is sort of a cheeky way to promote your own project because I'm technically involved in this production. <laughs> um, well, that's fair. Yeah. I don't, I don't, 
blame you for double dipping a little bit there. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Cross media promotion. The rules don't matter anymore, guys. We are in a pandemic. Uh, we've nearly had an insurrection at this point, so I don't really give a shit anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> rules are out. It's the, all fair now. Rules it's all are, fair play. Rules are out the door at this point. Hey, hey, guys, guys. This may not mean anything to the audience listening to it in a month month or so, but uh, there there was a run on the stock market because of because GameStop, and I, I I didn't think that would ever happen. Um, right. But um, <laughs> but yeah, fuck billionaires anyway. I don't give a shit anyway though. Um, but no, I've been um I've been fortunate to hear about this project from its inception and also to watch it blossom. And I've been on set with you. I think two times as of now and the other work that I've been doing is mainly organizational, but going to the blasting room is quite an interesting site because it's, it's, you would not expect it to be there. Uh, there's nothing really advertising it out there. Um, it's a very, very tucked away place. And I would guess rightfully so given the fact that they've got talent moving in and out of there constantly. Um, but, um, to give you an insight into my musical knowledge, um, the uh, the bottom line is is that when you kind of told me about the people we might be meeting in there, and my face was blank, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, who? Right. <laughs> rise a rise a what now?" <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's I mean it's funny because they they really are. Um, there's there's a couple of big national and international acts that you know, everybody would know. Uh, and by everybody, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're attached to music in, in some way, mm -hmm. um, you probably have heard them if you listen, if you ever turn on the radio, you know, um, to a, a like alt rock station. But right. a lot of these bands are kind of middle tier. Um, you haven't heard of, or they were big during a certain, you know, era of music, like the early aughts or something. Right. Um, and they're still making music, but they're just not as, as mainstream. So it, it's an interesting kind of middle tier. And I like it because I feel like a lot of the music documentaries you see really focus on big, big stars that, you know, they're selling out world stadium tours and they're selling, you know, millions and millions of records. And um, they, that's really the only type of music and bands that get a lot of attention. And I think that these other bands are equally if not more important than um, a lot of these bigger acts so i think it's it's worth giving them a platform and a a place in the uh in the history of the music scene yeah in something like a documentary so yeah and, and i will say that it is it is a fascinating site to be there running b cam and then having people walk by and you would go like that's so and so and i'd be like huh okay where do you want me to go next? <laughs> <I just> right. <laughs> and it was like, and it's, it was not out of like dismissal or anything. It's just like punk was something that I didn't grow up on. Um, if I grew up on anything related, it would have been like monster rock. Um, like a, that, like that was my jam with like an Alice Cooper or Rob Zombie kind of blasting through my ears. Like today, that's not so much the case. Um, but also like seventies rock and other, uh, uh, other retro music of that era, but we—I was also, as we're going to discuss today, a fan of swing music, jazz, and uh, music from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Not to the point of expertise, but uh, to the point of appreciation. Uh, I've since since starting this, I've gotten, I've dipped my toe further into the punk rock scene. Um, there's a great podcast from the UK called Band Biographies that is basically doing 
audio documentaries about uh, several punk bands. They did one on the Sex Pistols. They've done one on the Slits recently, which is an amazing episode. Um, so I'm I'm learning as I go along. So then hopefully it helps me out with any other further work I've, I I'll be doing on the sh- on the shoot. Um, but funny enough, though, to segue into King of Jazz, the studio that you're covering is also known for mastering and remastering albums um, and archiving them, uh, making sure that they don't disappear into the dustbins of history. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Jason um, has really uh, taken. Uh, you know, his, his business has really shifted to that mastering and, and remastering piece where um, he's just really good at putting the finishing work on records. So, I mean, there's a lot of bands that if you look, I mean, the, the Blasting Room's client list is insanely long. And a lot of those bands have just been masters or remasters um, to the point I was talking to him about a uh, a band I found uh, on uh, somewhat unrelated. I was doing a post for the the instagram for the um for the movie and i found a band called generals of monrovia which is a black fronted uh band from canada and they were super cool punk band and i was listening to their their newest ep immigrant punk and i saw in the liner notes uh mastered at the blasting room in fort collins really (laughs) wow um now i've seen footage of the blasting room and by this point the trailer's already come out too and you you do a wonderful job at capturing that punk feel and getting getting the vibrance out of that footage um which um i I mean i i'm glad that you didn't use any of the b cam that i shot because i was was like um i well and here's the thing i think we probably would have but we needed to uh get what i was trying to do was use um footage of bands we haven't interviewed yeah so that we had a a range of of people in the trailer yeah um so that you know we could showcase like we do have these people we just haven't gotten them in front of a camera yet yeah so it, it was really cool to see the 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 other day that i was on set when i shot uh, when when i did sound for you guys uh we were interviewing brett from reno divorce and uh i was just like oh, i remember that day <laughs> it hadn't been like more than a month or two but <laughs> um, yeah but to 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 think to think how close a lot of these people are in the area is remarkable because i was just like that's a throw a stone's throw away from where i work jesus um, yeah. But anyway, um, we are going to talk more to you about how we see music on film, though, because one of the reasons I asked you to do King of Jazz. So normally I ask I sent out uh, a letter with Ballyhoo saying pick a film pre-1968 to discuss. But um, number one, you were caught in the crosshairs of me trying to figure out if I was going to do Houston Wells or just one or the other. And um, now that I'm not doing Wells in there, technically we can do one of your choices, which is Touch of Evil, unless I decide to hold off on that. But um, I pitched this to you because King of Jazz is a movie that in a lot of ways, unlike other reviews of its era, really does... um, serve as a as a uh, a sort of origin point for what we will see very much down the line in concert films or um uh i would say like elaborately staged musical films where the focus is primarily the music and story is very irrelevant um uh a comparison that i've made to this and it's going to sound denigrating but it's actually legitimate is john m chu 
um, who's the director of, of recent films like Crazy Rich Asians, um, he started off working in films for, like, making films for folks like Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. So this is a guy who is setting up performance-based films. These are performance-based movies. Another example might even be the work of Prince, um, even though stories do play a part in his movies, we are mainly going to a Prince movie to watch the music on screen. Um, right, and, definitely. And King of Jazz, I feel, starts a through line with that because the emphasis is really on the music and what they are doing to basically create music videos before music videos existed because a lot of the music that we hear in King of Jazz, number one, it's not really jazz. Um, but number right. two, <laughs> that it was immediately apparent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But number two, it also really works itself into the form of a music video aesthetic, um, where style trumps substance 10 times out of 10. Um, and I, I will say like now, Aaron, the normal question I ask at the beginning of, uh, any new guest coming in is what is your experience with golden age Hollywood? Now you've kind of answered this on Hitchcock series, but for those who haven't heard that yet, could you explain your history with older films or lack thereof, if if that's the case? Yeah, for sure. I like you know, growing up, my um, my mom was always a big fan of the older like musical movies with like uh, you know Frank Sinatra and and Fred Astaire and right. and those kind of things. So I saw a lot of that as a kid. Um, and then when I got into uh, film and television. You know, the the film school I went to, that's, you know, where we watched like Touch of Evil. I actually think we watched that in my color theory class um, just to talk about the contrast and how they they mm. use black and white effectively in that movie. Right. Um, and so I think it just kind of um, actually, no, that was that was a uh, film aesthetics. Okay. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> Point doesn't is, you know, doesn't it, matter. All you have to know is that I made an amazing movie, Aaron. That's all you need to know. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it really did just kind of start with, um, you know, seeing those older films growing up, uh, being exposed to some older cinema in in t uh, television school, for lack of a better term, before I did film. Mm -hmm. And then wanting to get more immersed in that and saying like, oh, I should I should watch these classic films like Citizen Kane and the Maltese Falcon and, you know, all of those kind of older Hollywood gems. Uh -huh. um, and then obviously then going to film school, you get even broader horizons and see even more stuff. So and you're like, wait um, a minute, you don't have to speak English in a movie. Jesus, what the what? hell are we doing? Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's been, it's been a, a long, a long road, but it's fun. Yeah. Um, and a lot of growth too, like something I, I wanted to, to say, and, and this has been, you know, really that I've, I've learned um, in doing the music documentaries, but I think it applies to film too, is we have this, this point as people who are involved in a certain field, whether it be film or music or something where, where we suddenly realize, Oh, I don't, I'm not familiar with this movie or this director or this band or this, you know, artist or whatever. And, um, we're like embarrassed to know about it, but it, or the, embarrassed to admit we don't know about it, but it's, it's that, you know, we all have to learn it and stumble across it at some time in our lives. We're not born with that knowledge. Oh yeah. So, no. yeah. Uh, you know, being like coming to it when you're meant to come to it, I think there's something, 
uh, to be said for that. So uh, this has been fun just because, you know, we're really digging into some deep cuts in Hollywood that I probably never would have watched otherwise. Yeah. Well, so. yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of the reason for me wanting to start this show is because my assumption would be that people would have films they'd want to discuss that I've never even heard of. Or if I've seen them, I would have seen them years ago and don't remember them at all. Like previous guest, John Strelick brought up summertime as the David lean choice he wanted to do. And I'm like, I had no idea David lean made this movie. All I really know of David lean is some of his early black and white stuff. And then match with the desert. You know, that's like all the right. only things you really uh, conjure up. So I, my hope is, is that I get more exposed to things that I never would have imagined seeing as opposed to just saying like, here, let's talk about my favorite things. Like uh, if I mean, you'll know if it's a favorite of mine when I bring up the name Jack Benny. That's the thing that we're going to that's the thing that that's where I'll play my selfish card. Apart from that, you know, this is this is an attempt to try and expose to these deep cracks if possible, whether they be CDB pictures, noir films, um, unknown horror movies, uh, unknown comedies, uh, even B-level dramas um, or Westerns. Um, and in the case of today's film, musical reviews are a genre that don't really exist anymore in this form. If we have them, again, they come in the form of concert profile pieces where you have a, a a project a project surrounded by an artist like Katy Perry, Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, like a big pop artist who gets their own movie. And whether it's lack of confidence that they can act on screen or whatever the case may be, they create a film around their music and around their aesthetic and around their vibe. Um, and right. so, but the reviews of this era were primarily an extension off of Broadway and vaudeville uh, in in the years when cinema couldn't speak. And what's more, this is a film that doesn't just have music in it. It also technically has vaudeville comedy going on in it. Now, we're going to talk about the difference between the comedy that goes on here and the comedy that goes on in other reviews of its era that are much more successful. Um, but before we even talk about the film, Aaron, we've got to address the white man in the room. His name is Paul Whiteman. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, he's a very, very interesting, albeit very uh, under-discussed figure, even though he is surrounded by a lot of major happenings in the world of early jazz as it existed in a certain form and also carried on quite a bit of a legacy even after his crown had been uh, subdued by more deserving people. Um, but we'll start off. He was born in Denver, Colorado. Uh, he, oh, wow. He was uh, cool. his, his father, uh, Wilberforce James Whiteman, which is the most white name I've ever heard in my life. Wilberforce <laughs> James <laughs> Weisman the third. <laughs> yes, yes. Why not? I'm the third white man in a long line of white men that keep being white and men. Um, but he's, right. he's the... That's an unfortunate last name. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. At least in, let's, in 2021, that's an unfortunate last name. <laughs> the, Paul Whiteman, given the name that... Given the fact that he is called the king of jazz, is unfortunate on a lot of levels... Uh, a lot of levels which haven't weren't really oh, weren't really discussed out loud until a movie like La La Land came out in 2016, where a lot of appropriate criticism was thrown at that movie for um, 
basically uh, uh, relegating the importance of a black artist's contribution to jazz uh, in favor of this story of two adorable white people getting together on screen. Now, I like La La Land a lot, but for other reasons. (laughs) Now, and if it's any indication, I bought La La Land on Blu-ray. It's still in its package. I still have not opened it up again. I've only, I saw it three times in theaters, and then after that, I still haven't picked it up in four years, so... Um, right and you know uh, but anyway um <laughs> the the whiteman's role in jazz seems like it would be problematic and there are elements of it being problematic but the reality is is that whiteman is actually a lot more progressive than we would give him credit for today um and that's not to excuse his cooperation with a system that you know, subdued African-American prosperity, but he did find his own way to carve um, out a way, carve out a path of progression in a different form. But in order to discuss the history of jazz would be a loaded subject that we don't have the time to fully discuss. All you need to know is, is that (laughs) realistically, when it breaks down to it, African-Americans in this country create jazz, um, which come from different sources coming together from other countries that they came from to create what we know as jazz. If you want more information on this, Ken Burns has a multi-hour documentary series about jazz that is one of the most informative and beautiful things to ever watch, period. Um, Talking about everything from Duke Ellington to Louis Armstrong to Ella Fitzgerald and what their roles were then and what we perceive them to be now. Um, Whiteman, though, uh, his, as his origin point is discussed, he's born in Denver, Colorado. His father, Wilberforce, was the supervisor of music for Denver Public Schools, um, which he held that position for 50 years, Aaron. Um, oh, wow. He was a big believer in more classical form of music. And right. his son said... Fuck that shit. I don't want to <laughs> I don't I don't want to play classical music, dad. I want to be hip and where it's at. Can you dig it, daddy-o? Um and um but he obviously learned music through having a father like this because he worked hard right. with the viola uh and earned a place in 1907 in the Denver Symphony Orchestra uh and then joined the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra in 1914. Um, four years later, he started conducting a 12-piece U.S. Navy band, the Mare Island Naval Training Camp Symphony Orchestra, or NTCSO. Um, but, uh, or you could just call it the Navy Band. Why not? Um, and uh, <laughs> after the war, he forms the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. Um, this was a dance band. Dance band and jazz sort of commingle within the 20s. Um, We've heard of different dances such as the Foxtrot or the Charleston where it's a it's not the same as the more raucous form of swing that would become much more popular as the 30s would progress. Um, but Whiteman was influenced by jazz um, so much so to the point within his music that in the 1920s, the media refer to him as the king of jazz um, and uh his form of jazz is organized composition, so it's symphonic jazz, um, or mm-hmm. like symphony. It, like it's laid out in an actual composition with very little room for improv, um, and uh, and Whiteman 
thought the genre could be improved by orchestrating the best of it with formal arrangements. Um, Eddie Condon, um, who is a uh, band leader and a banjoist, criticized him for uh, trying to make a lady out of jazz, was his quote. Um, but <laughs> That's good. I like that. But it's a very appropriate statement. It's a very appropriate statement. Uh, Whiteman, though, his recordings were very popular, both critically and commercially, and his form of jazz um, uh, would be one of the first forms of jazz that any Americans would hear during the era. Um, he wrote more than 3,000 different arrangements, Aaron. So he's not a lightweight wow. and um, yeah, as as evidenced by things. yeah and as evidenced by his photos he certainly was not a lightweight <laughs> <laughs> uh this is not True. a fat shaming podcast but paul whiteman was a rather rotund fellow um and his he was, he pro- large yeah his profile sure. with his face is very full to the point where <laughs> it could become the moon um and um which obviously has a lot of uh uh it's an iconic thing. He has a very iconic look about him, a very iconic look that you would notice from a mile away. Um, yeah. I will say that among his most popular uh, standards and arrangements would be Wang Wang Blues, Mississippi Mud, Wonderful One, Hot Lips, He's Got Hot Lips When He Plays Jazz, Mississippi Sweet, Grand, Grand Canyon Sweet, Traveling Light, um, and then, of course, Rhapsody in Blue. And his arrangement um, and his version of Rhapsody in Blue um, is something that he had commissioned from George Gershwin. Um, Rhapsody in Blue ultimately is considered the uh, ultimate symphonic version of jazz where all the elements mix together accordingly to create a classy form of what jazz is comprised of. Um, Whether it be music music uh, instruments that had never been heard in these kind of arrangements before and just the overall pace of the piece um and it is a piece of music that i still listen to um you know goodman uh, whiteman aside um and his but the one thing that i will say that leads us to the discussion of his role in jazz is paul whiteman had to fight with management and uh uh, executives a lot to have black musicians in his band. Um, a lot of his, a lot of the people pulling the strings for him refused to let him have black musicians on stage with him. Um, and uh, his, it, 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 he kind of seems to be of strong armed into it because he encouraged African music, American musical talent and had planned to hire these black musicians, and then his management would persuade him that doing so would destroy his career due to racial tension, and at this point, Jim Crow, segregation, all that bullshit that has gone away on the surface. (laughs) Uh, But there are people that he hires for his band that work in various ways behind the scenes. So he basically was trying to get African-Americans on stage in front of him. But a lot of African-American artists uh, in jazz specifically referenced him as an inspiration. It seemed like he had a very much, um, it, it seems like nobody really had an actual issue with him in regards to his approach. Now he had an ego about him like any artist of that era probably would. 
but it seemed like he didn't really abuse the um uh the 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 power that he held for the most part um so long story short whiteman is a figure that really permeates throughout the 20s and by the time his popularity is soaring to an to a, to an astounding degree um he gets uh caught up in the tear of uh, caught up in the whirlwind of sound on film um now Aaron what is your familiarity with the earliest sound films you know, obviously any- like the jazz singer is the the quintessential sound film talkie. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen it. I just know that that's, you know, the, the one that's always referenced. Uh, so, I mean, I don't really know. Like I, I certainly have not watched a lot of that overlapping, uh, silent to sound stuff. Right. You know, yeah, it's very much a, a, just, uh, not something I've explored. So, um, yeah, most of what I've seen has had talking and, and everything um i guess well no i you know i'll take that back actually um we did watch like the great train robbery um which was a good you know silent film with music and uh kind of a classic one um so yeah i mean not a lot i'll say that like you know my my experience with silent silent and or um you know early talking pictures is pretty minimal okay so the the thing to understand about film at this particular era in time uh, is ultimately that uh, the studio system was fucked <laughs> <laughs> with the existence of sound. And, um, you know, to talk about the jazz singer is it's going to have its own episode because it's a film that I do think people should watch with the with the caveat that it, it contains one of the most iconic and disturbing instances of blackface in cinema history um right in fact warner brothers did a sound film before the jazz singer called don juan and it was a silent film that used sound effects and a full orchestra but they did not have the ability to wire every theater and there wasn't enough of a draw based on the amount of sound effects and the music. It just wasn't the same. You needed dialogue. Dialogue was going to be your key into sound on film working. And the jazz singer did work. It worked so well that a lot of studios had to change their shit very quickly. And what you have actually with this transition period is a lot of silent films get reshot for sound where they will refilm certain sections or refilm the thing entirely in order to incorporate sound. Um, right. They're having to scramble in a massive, massive way to the point where it's almost remarkable that they scramble as fast as they do given the time. Um, and uh, uh, when you have a studio like Universal, the way Carl Lemley Jr. did, um, mm-hmm. You are constantly trying to find any way to make ground and make money because you are hemorrhaging money daily because you're <laughs> Universal Pictures. Um, Universal Pictures, as we've discussed on this show before, um, does not fully um, 
stay afloat throughout the early years of Hollywood. It struggles constantly under financial strain. Eventually, the studio is handed over um, reluctantly, but unfortunately, to people other than the Lemleys because they were not able to complete Showboat, um, their revamp of Showboat, in time for the investors. And so when they finally left, when Showboat did make money, it was too late for the Lemleys to cash in on that success so every studio is scrambling to get sound properties off the off the ground and one of the most popular ways to do this in a way that would showcase this ability with sound would be musicals or musical reviews at this Mm -hmm. time musicals and musical reviews of this era the camera is not going to move because the sound equipment is still attached in that box that we think of in a generic sense when it comes to early sound films. Um, And Universal actually technically breaks this myth with Dracula because the camera does move in Dracula. The camera does move in Frankenstein, and this is 1931. But the year before this, which is 1929, 1930, they are still adjusting to the new... Uh, the new technology as other people are um, now in that time um, now that it was possible for music to become a key element of the filmmaking process all the studios are looking for singers and musicians to become mu- movie stars um, and anybody mm-hmm. who had dialogue in their repertoire as a as an added attraction um, so with Whiteman's success people were flocking to Whiteman they were like, we need you in our, in, our, in our studio with a property around you. And eventually Universal Pictures wins that option. They signed him to a contract that was very, very um, Wellsian uh, because it's a person who's never stepped in front of a camera in his fucking life. And they're going to give him basically all but direct, all, all but every single bit of creative control. Um apart from directing the movie himself, which I, I frankly don't think would have even interested Whiteman to begin with. He'd be like, no, I don't know how to operate the camera. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> at least, least of all to try to save your fledgling studio, Mr. Junior Lemley or whatever the hell your name is. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, like uh, it, it, he, but the deal is amazing. He receives 40% of the net profits with a guarantee of 200 grand and approval of screenplay and director. Um, and they would also be paying the salaries for 25 members of White Whiteman's orchestra for the eight weeks of filming. Um, 40% of net profits sounds great until you realize what net profits means. Um, net profits is not gross profits. Net profits is whatever they net in as the final profit, you get 40% of that. The Marx Brothers got screwed this way by Paramount, and that's one of the reasons why they left Paramount, because they got screwed out of money because Paramount used their net profit deal to cover debts. Um, But if you're an artist who's coming into the film business for the first time and hearing 40% of the net profits, it sounds impressive, and you're going to latch on to that. Um, And realistically, as long as Universal's following the guidelines of their contract, 40% of the net profits is a good deal. Like, it's a very good deal. Um, Now, um, this seems like an insane fucking idea for Universal to be like, look, we we put somebody on screen who's never been on screen before, give him carte blanche, give him this unprecedented realm of freedom. But Whiteman could technically draw that crowd in 
feasibly he could. Um, and they go through a several uh, round of ideas. First off is obviously maybe do a, a, a fictionalized version of Whiteman becoming the band leader he is today. Um, and Whiteman objected to this because he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to play myself. I'm not. An hey, Carl, Carl Jr., whatever your name is. I'm not an actor. <laughs> Whiteman's so basic. He... Whiteman's honest with himself. I appreciate it. He's just like, look at me. I'm not a leading man. What the hell are you thinking? <laughs> like, so he did. He did earn his title though by by uh, soothing a, a lion in Africa with his sweet sweet violin playing. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, like get... that is that's an accurate story, right? We'll, I feel we'll, like we'll, that seems accurate. Well, we'll get to that because there was a different version of that cartoon initially storyboarded, and in the Criterion Collection you can find. Um, a video essay that includes images of those storyboards and shows basically what that cartoon was going to be until that got next. Um, and, uh, but the another it's worse. It, yeah, it, uh, it, is it worse? I bet it's worse. No, it's not worse. It's actually okay. one I would prefer. Um, okay. but we'll, That's good. again, we'll talk about it because actually one of the things we will talk about in this episode is animation. Um, but the other scenario, um, had white men and his band playing themselves and they were support, um, the uh, a basically a backstage musical comedy plot about an agent trying to convince a studio head to make a movie about Paul Whiteman. Um, and he objected to this on the grounds that the script made fun of him and his band. And uh, even though it gave him less screen time, he still had too much acting to do. So he's basically just like, I don't want to act. I'm a, I'm right. a band leader. I'm not fucking I, i'm not marie chevalier i'm not al jolson i don't know what you want from me no, it, it is kind of interesting like it's nice refreshing to think that there was a time when people were like you know what i can't act don't put me in front of a camera because i think we have the opposite of that now where people just want to also keep in mind with this kind of meta plot you know whiteman's got to be looking at it and be like so i'm playing me and i'm supporting another main character who's trying to put, make a movie about me that then becomes this movie. What what kind of rabbit hole bullshit is this? <laughs> like the term meta hadn't really been constructed for people like white men. So like Right, it, yeah, a little, little too early for that meta thing. He'd be like this is, sounds crazy. It sounds like this one time when I heard an idea about a man with knife hands who made a movie and then the director said, what if I made that person real and I had to recreate the movie and I'm writing the script at the same time. His name was Wes Craven. I don't, I don't know if he'll make anything of a success, but he told this little <laughs> boy told me that he was going to make some mind bending shit. And I was like, well, you go ahead and do that junior. Here's a cookie. Meanwhile, Whiteman's going to lead his band. And now you give me something did Wes write this? <laughs> like, <laughs> did Wes Craven write this script? Is that little boy there? <laughs> like, this, this is this is kind of fucking nuts that they would expect to. It's not like, and to keep in mind, it's not mind bending, bending meta, but it is right. meta humor, um, or it's insider baseball. Um, the uh, the idea of a showbiz backstage comedy doing it this way, feasibly, it could make sense and it could work, but. He didn't like the idea of him and his band being reduced to a joke. Um, and he just didn't want to, again, like, I don't want to be a fucking actor. I want to get paid to play my music the way I would do it on stage and then leave and enjoy my life 
Is it possible? Um, right. So the whole well, it makes sense too. Like, I mean, being a musician, you want to, you want the focus to be the music. You don't want it to be this, um, you know, like weird shoehorn story around your path to becoming a musician. So I can totally understand that shift in focus from, from his perspective. He's not unaware of where his limits lie. Um, you know, the only, again, as we discussed, the only thing he really tried to step above and beyond was something that was coming out of pure respect and admiration for African-American artists. Um, and that being basically rejected and, put into a position where he was basically compelled to not do it by his business associates. But he, he would work with African-Americans behind the scenes where there was, he commissioned Duke Ellington, uh, Duke Ellington to write for his modern music series, um, which was recorded with Paul Robeson and Billy Holiday. And he had Don Redman as an arranger in the thirties. Um, so Redman would have actually contributed arrangements to the King of Jazz. Um, so, um, and, you know, again, you know, doesn't excuse not telling the racist white assholes to go fuck themselves, but you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to judge white men harsh on the, on the pulpit of today when he did make an attempt. Um, yeah, yeah but, exactly. But, he wasn't, he yeah. wasn't completely like ignoring that talent, no, um, it's, it's, but it, there were other yeah. societal pressures preventing him from incorporating them as much as he probably would have liked. Yeah. And it's, and it's a system that's set up. I talk a little bit about with Jack Benny in terms of like, he's not able to break the ground completely, but he does his own version of it, of paving the way for performers right. like Eddie Anderson. Um, but regardless, Whiteman knows his limits. So the whole production goes on hiatus and a lot of money is wasted um, so that an acceptable premise could be found. Oh, and, universal. Oh, <laughs> just, just wasting that money. Oh, don't worry, dad. <laughs> don't worry, dad. We'll get this done. And then I've got this really cool book. It's, it's about a guy who bites girls necks. Um, and he speaks with a Hungarian accent. And then I got another book about a crazy dude who makes an entire human being out of the parts of other human beings. Um, and, and we'll get a guy who has a lisp, but he'll be amazing in it because he won't say anything. And then in the sequel, we'll make him speak and it'll piss him off. Um, <laughs> that was a terrible impression of Carl I Emily wish, Jr. <laughs> I do wish that that had been the pitch, though, because, like, can you imagine if that actually got, like, how they sold that? I mean, right now, what if we had another guy with that with with that actor we had playing that monster? What if he played another monster? And at first, we have him in bandages, but in the rest of the movie, we just have him in scary makeup. Even though people in the future will want to see him in the bandages, but it doesn't matter because it's basically going to be a remake of that movie I made about the guy who uh, bites women's necks. Except it's not going to be biting necks. It's going to be ancient Egyptian curses. And then, <laughs> here's the kicker. What if a man was invisible? <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta say, man, those ancient Egyptian curses, those freak me out. Oh. Like I've read some weird shit around you, people you, opening up, you know, pyramids. We, and, yeah. and did, oh, did yeah. you, like Actually, that's funny because the mummy stems from the idea that when those when the, the when the tombs of Tutankhamun were found, people were dropping like flies as a result of opening up that chest, and some people in the states were like, "Well, say that would make an interesting idea for something spooky," and then they make <laughs> the mummy. Um, and actually, we've recently had tombs opened 
uh, as 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 recently as 2020. And my first reaction was just like, how many people need to get it through their fucking skulls <laughs> that we yeah. can't do Close this? That like, shit up. Yeah. Universal this Universal is actually trying to save us, Aaron. They've kept right. making mummy movies not to cash in on that franchise they keep trying to tell people stop opening up tombs like yes, it doesn't it's not worth it, it it's not it worth never it. ends well look 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 <laughs> brendan frazier got tired of explaining it by 2008 that's why he walked away we tried to get tom cruise to explain it to you but all tom cruise wanted to do was hang off the back of an airplane so they proved to be a costly waste of time um and, <laughs> and, and so seriously guys we can't afford another mummy movie, so please stop it. <laughs> we, we've got plenty of evidence for you. Hammer Studios did the exact same thing. Um, anyway, the production is halted in Universal Waste of Money. And there's actually sets that are built prior with, other, with the other directors that were involved in this project prior to John Murray Anderson finding his way to the... Um, to the, to the director's seat of this film. And John Murray Anderson is kind of an amazing figure. Uh, he was a theater director. He was a songwriter. He's an actor, a screenwriter, dis- lighting, lighting designer, and a dancer. Um, his, his big work comes in the form of producing the Ziegfeld Follies in the, 19, in the mid-1930s in 34, 36, and 1943. Um, and, but prior to even coming aboard to um, uh, the King of Jazz, he starts off running an acting school in Manhattan and teaches people like Betty Davis and Lucille Ball, amongst others. And he and Davis remained good friends. And he make he made his Broadway debut wearing three hats as a writer, director, and producer for the Greenwich Village Follies. Um, and he eventually made his way to Paramount and then Universal scoops him up. And there's actually sequences in King of Jazz that were first designed by him and conceived by him for short films with Paramount Pictures. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the film. And a full disclosure on the plot of this film, there is no plot. So we're basically reviewing a vaudeville act. So that, that'll right. be very <laughs> interesting um, as yeah. we go through this. But um, regardless, um, the... Uh, the, they hire him, and he had done a lot of reviews on Broadway, and the film had already incurred a cost of $350,000 without shooting any footage until October of 1929, Aaron. I'm Jeez. trying to think of a movie that has wasted that much money in development that we've heard of, because obviously... Right. There are a lot of projects that get stalled in Hollywood and we never hear about them ever again because they wasted right. a bunch of money on development. But, but I mean, 300 grand, right? Is that what you said? 300? 300 grand. So in today's dollars, I, I mean, like, I'm, tr- yeah, I'm, I'm going to pull it up now. Yeah, that's a, that's a shitload of money in <laughs> $2020, Yeah, that's, let's see. That would accumulate to five million three hundred and thirty one thousand dollars and eighteen cents so <laughs> or five five million three hundred and thirty one thousand three hundred thirty nine dollars and eighteen cents um so yeah that's a that's that's five million dollars without filming a goddamn thing 
Um, I mean, that's the entire budget of some Hollywood movies from that's, like the nineties. That's like, a that's a Blumhouse movie, Aaron. That's a Blumhouse yeah. budget right there. That's ridiculous. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure Whiteman's looking at it and like, guys, guys, just film me in my fucking band. <laughs> like, <laughs> these stories are bullshit. You guys are bullshit. Just film me in my fuck. I've got this young guy. You 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 don't know him yet. His name's Bing Crosby. He's part of the Rhythm Boys. And I mean the rest of the Rhythm Boys are fine, but he clearly could be a matinee idol. I mean, you'll you won't see it until years later. Actually, Paul Whiteman and Crosby had some uh fights, and we'll get into that here in a second. But for the purposes yeah. of this joke, he's saying, look, Universal, he could he could work with a ski nosed comedian and and go on many roads, if you will, many roads, uh, <laughs> maybe to Singapore, maybe to Zanzibar, um, but yeah, no. So anyway, Murray comes in and basically overhauls prior designs for things that have been done in prep for this film, um, the elaborate sets that they built and that were initially designed by other uh, other talents are then repurposed for this production. Um, right. The film becomes this grab bag now as a result, and it becomes a review um, with a scrapbook of Paul Whiteman's being the uh, entry and exit point of the movie. Like, it's your way, it's your gateway in, which is something that Murray Anderson had done before uh, in other prior reviews as a way for the audience to tr not only enter the, the story, if you will, but also to transition between scenes. And actually, it was designed by Lynn Holm. Lynn Holm was the designer for it. And so we should go ahead and talk about the movie at this point. Because at yeah, this point, they, you know, they start let's... filming it. One of the things we're going to be talking about immensely in this film is that this film is not only an early sound effort of Universal's, but it's also done in two-strip Technicolor. Um, now, Aaron, in addition to being a documentary filmmaker, you have also done color work in the past. Um, mm -hmm. for, for anybody who may not be familiar with it, when it comes to color on film, there is a science to it. This is not something as flimsy as just having the ability to shoot color. There is a system to it, but initially the Technicolor process started off as a two-color process where it was red and green strips of film running through the camera with a prism beam splitter behind the camera and then exposed the consecutive frames onto a single strip of black and white negative. And then you would put a red filter and a blue filter um, behind it. And these two films frames being exposed at the same time had to be photographed and projected at a normal speed. Um, so projection standards were required to be different in order to show color films. But two strip Technicolor is not the same as three strip Technicolor, obviously. So right. And I mean, and that adds a complication, right? When you're working with just red and just green, there's some colors you can't really capture or you extremely difficult to capture mm -hmm. um, when those are the only two you have to work with when you're normally in like a three color light spectrum. Right. And so when it comes to two strip, you're primarily seeing the emanations that come off of red and green hue. Um, you can capture skin tone, but it's a strange form of skin tone. That's not realistic mm -hmm. whatsoever. 
Um, it's like it's, it's if anything, it feels over pale. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's it's kind of like a washed out skin tone. I mean, yeah, and it's it's almost as it's it's it. Uh, they they don't look like ghosts per se, although because Whiteman the... himself wasn't necessarily a tan human being, um, he comes off as the whitest of the. He is the white man. <laughs> yeah, even more so than the the actual ghost in the movie. <sighs> I'm sorry, that was a spoiler. I shouldn't have said anything. Yeah, I, I just ruined it. No, but you're don't right. Don't even watch it now, everyone. No, no, just yeah, don't, don't, movie. don't, don't fucking watch King and Jazz. Just go, just go watch The Searchers again, because that was a romp and a hoot and a holler, wasn't it, guys? <laughs> um, but anyway, um, we'll go ahead and jump into the plot of the film, because I mean, the the beauty of this of the Technicolor and the sound all colliding together is that you do get this lovely instance of what a film can look like and what color would end up doing for cinema down the line. Because obviously once you get the three color process, everything becomes much more vibrant and specific with two color. You are not only super specific, but you have to get inventive with it. But anyway, we'll, we'll jump into the plot of this film. We open up with um, the, the familiar strains of Rhapsody in blue before we transition into a little bit of uh, Derbingle singing, uh, Mr. Old Groner himself, Bing Crosby. At this time, Bing Crosby was a part of the Rhythm Boys, um, which was uh, uh, working with the White Men Orchestra uh, on a number of recordings and then releasing their own singles on the side as well. Um, and uh, they, in the film, they sing, amongst others, Mississippi Mud, So the Bluebirds and the Blackbirds Got Together, A Bench in the Park, and Happy Feet. Um, and um, the Rhythm Boys consisted of Harriet Barris, Al Rinker, and Bing Crosby. Bing is obviously the one we know today, um, but they they work really well together, I will say. But right now we're hearing primarily Bingle. And, um, and then we transition out of the tide opening titles which again it's like because it's uh two strip technicolor it's like this red and green swirl like it's like it's almost trying to be a paint swirl but it can't quite do it because it's only got two colors to work with right <laughs> so it kind of feels odd but it feels beautiful at the same time like it's very very fascinating like it is not it's like a dream it's like a very weird off off-putting dream um, yeah. That will, which I mean, to to an extent, if you are making a movie called The King of Jazz, you don't want it to feel super traditional. So this is a good way to go. Like it does feel different. It feels unique in a way that other films of this era certainly aren't going to look. Um, right. Uh, but at any rate, we 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 leave this. We leave this opening segment, and we have uh, Charles Irwin, uh, who's your MC for the evening, coming in to introduce this big old scrapbook. <laughs> yeah, <Is> this... <laughs> got a, the... a ridiculous set piece. <laughs> yeah, the the caricature of Paul Whiteman. And like, I mean, like, if anybody is wondering, like, what it looks like, there are photos online, or if you're watching the movie it kind of reminds me of book review, the cartoon that Mary melodies did where they have all the people popping in and out of the books or like when Gumby, whatever he would go inside a book, but Charles Irwin right now he's talking about, I bet you're wondering how Paul Whiteman became the King of jazz. And he's like, well, I'm going to show you one day. Paul went to what got tired of city life. 
and he decided to hunt big game in darkest Africa. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, the nineteen. 19- 30s. Now, now, now. To be fair, uh, in in all in all fairness, it seems like this was the last resort option for doing right. this King That's of fair. Jazz segment. Um, the uh, it, 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 this is one of the first Technicolor animated cartoon segments, um, uh, for at least Universal, where uh, Walter Lance, who later went on to create Woody Woodpecker. Uh, and other cartoon characters, and he had Will William Nolan along with him. Walter Lance is a cartoonist, primarily part of this collective at uh, at Universal that makes their version of cartoons. Um, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is their big gun uh, at this time. Um, and Universal created this character in 1927 with a little help from a guy who then would go on to found a studio that would then go on to consume another studio and then would go on to basically dominate the landscape. It's Disney. It's Disney. <laughs> right. Walt Disney created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit along with the um, with his work with uh, 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 Works. Um, I works would later on create Mickey Mouse with Walt supervising it because that's how that story actually goes, guys. Um, and um, but Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was basically yoinked away from Disney at that at this point because they were just like, well, it's our cartoon. We don't need to sign up with you, Mr. Walt again. And Mr. Walt was like, well, fine, I'll just get on a train and be depressed for a couple of hours until I come up with a fucking mouse character. And then I'll have <laughs> Updraught, and then I will go on to make one successful movie in the late 30s, and then I will go on to waste a lot of money on cool experiments that people will appreciate years later. So fuck you, Universal. And that's when he just pounded the table, and everybody was like, Jesus, that's some weird future prediction. And he... <laughs> um, but so the, so I am, the that's interesting to know because I knew Oswald was an early yeah. uh, Disney creation. So I was like, why is he in this movie? Well, it seems weird. So at the but time, I didn't know the history of Dis- of Disney. So there you go. Yeah. So yeah, Universal took control over it, and the cartoon didn't seem to really um, step beyond its boundaries. There's 142 Oswald productions supervised by Walter Lance, um, and Disney in 2006 uh, initiated a trade with NBC Universal that included a bunch of assets, including the rights to Oswald uh, in exchange for sending news sportscaster um, Al Michaels from ABC to ESPN to CNN Sports. Um, So a sportscaster like Al Michaels is responsible for Oswald the Rookie Rabbit coming back to the Disney realm. Uh, so, and it seemed like the Disney family was very, very happy that that happened. So that's cool that they did get him back. But at this time he wasn't universal. So technically, even under the agreements of this, the, the, the primary inclusion of Oswald, the rookie rabbit in this cartoon stems from the fact that one, he's only in there for like a second and two, it's a universal (laughs) produced movie. Technically they have a claim on this. So this isn't like, 
And it seems like Disney was willing to be like, look, like we know you guys do a certain kind of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit after you acquire him. So that's not what we're interested in. What we're interested in is Disney's legacy. Um, And so, but anyway, so the initial cartoon they were going to do was actually going to be more or less a the bur- uh, how Paul Whiteman became the king of jazz and it would be basically a musical biopic of the era <laughs> like it does like, right. like a small <laughs> little like segment of just like well Paul learned the drums and then Paul you know learned jazz and then he and, and he won the affection of his parents which would obviously not be true um so instead this became the cartoon which is Whiteman hunting in darkest africa he's chased by a lion uh and uh, he runs the, the lion sharpens his teeth by taking it out and, you know, like treating it like it's a razor and build a butcher's stack of knives. And then, <laughs> and then he basically runs away. And as he's as Whiteman, the cartoon is running away. It's uh, he starts singing, my Lord, deliver Daniel, my Lord, deliver Daniel. Why can't he deliver me? And. Whiteman's voice is portrayed by Mr. Bing Crosby. Yes, yes. Boom, 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 boom. I'm, I'm, my, my Lord, deliver Daniel. Why can't you deliver me a contract so that I can make some fucking movies and make some fucking money that I can then use to buy the Pittsburgh Pirates? Um, and so he, the cartoon then runs into like, well, okay, Whiteman's trapped, but then he pulls out a fiddle and he soothes the lion. So they, and we all know from... Uh, wildlife research in elementary school, Aaron. That if you want to tame a lion, you play violin music for him. It's why, See, tech- you know, yeah. I always heard the clarinet, so I feel like I this movie's very misleading in its portrayal of violin. But I don't know because I've never had to do it. Well, so. you then you went to a bad sector of public schools, Aaron. See, mine told I've, me about the violins. Um, yes, but they also let, neg- yet another time I've been failed by the public school system. Yeah, but now granted, my schools also told me that racism was solved in the '60s, and I know now that that's a hunk of lies. So obviously. No matter what public school system you're going to, they'll lie to you about selective things. Um, and anyway, uh, the uh, I mean, on the grand scheme of things, I think lying about how to uh, soothe a savage beast is probably better than lying about institutional racism. But well, you know, well, you know, wait, wait, which which one are we talking about today? I don't think we're talking about institutionalized racism, Aaron. I think we're talking about taming lions in Africa. <laughs> We are. That's true. Yeah. So today, that's the most today I have been failed. Yeah, to today I've been failed too because like that because I still I don't know how to play a violin. So if a lion comes up to me, I'm fucked. Like I can't go to the zoo now because of this, Aaron. Because the, the the all the lions know that I'm the one guy who can't play the fiddle. Everybody else learned it, but I fucking didn't. Um, <laughs> right. And if one of those gets out, you're screwed, man. Oh like... yeah, exactly. And then I'll be saying, "My Lord, deliver Daniel," <laughs> just running <laughs> through the running through the Denver Zoo, singing right. like Bing Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try uh, to play a viola, but it's not the same. He'll still eat it's me. Just not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the lion starts dancing doing a rumba and then the music makes a tree turn into a hula dancer <laughs> and then the tree starts dancing and then you you think well okay it's just um it's just these animals dancing and a tree dancing it can't get anywhere oh my god native stereotypes holy shit oh god god damn it uh, yeah, there's some racism in this movie, folks, and we will address it as accordingly. In the case of this cartoon, you see some uh, native uh, black-faced appearance uh, characters uh, 
in string noodle noodle body animation form. Uh, They're only there for like (laughs) three seconds, but it's still messed up. Then they move quickly. They move quickly away from it. I will say though. (laughs) Yeah, it's fortunately brief. Like at least they. I will say that any instance of there being offensive material today in this movie is thankfully super short and super non important to the movie. Like it's literally like it means absolutely nothing. Um, right. That doesn't make it right, but it's it's easier on my on my sanity uh, to so that I can appreciate the good things about the movie if possible. Um, but then it moves away and there's like an elephant who drains his entire, (laughs) he fills his body up with water and then drains it entirely of not just water, but seemingly all of his body fluids. Cause then he turns into a skeleton. (laughs) Like like the the physics of elephants in this movie flabbergast me. (laughs) It's very strange. Having studied elephant physics, it it certainly doesn't track, but you know, it's a cartoon. So yeah. And also fun fact, you know, Elephants shouldn't really eat peanuts the way cartoons describe that they should. Like that's not healthy for them. Um, and uh, and then also like you know things are thrown at monkeys and monkey gets pissed and throws a coconut at Paul Whiteman and Paul Whiteman goes oh my head um, or he says it like Bing Crosby so he's like oh geez my head it got hurt and then uh, <laughs> and then it, the bump on his head forms into a crown and that Aaron is how you become the king of jazz. You, it you, truly, truly is. You get you get to become the king of jazz by taming lions with a violin, and through a series of improbable magic, dark magic events, <laughs> <laughs> get crowned oh, the king of God. jazz because a monkey in a tree goes, "Say, I'm gonna hit that fucker with a coconut." <laughs> <laughs> If any I wish of somebody would do that and make me the king of just anything. Oh That'd yeah. Really oh nice. dude. Well, if a, if a <laughs> if a monkey hit me on the head in the proper way, I could become the king of tap dancing. But that's certainly not going to happen because we got rid of all of our. Mo- I can't go to the zoo, Aaron. I can't go to the fucking zoo. Like that's, that's right. The, the lions will get you. The lions will get me. So conse- so consequently, I can't go in there to the monkey cages and be like, "Yo, hit me with a coconut." <laughs> King me, monkeys. King, king me. King me. Yeah, king me. King me. Yeah. It's 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 this game of chess that I want to lim- win for my soul in life. Uh, but anyway, then we move on, uh, and uh, Paul unleashes his band from a suitcase. <laughs> and it's I will I will say this. I do uh, really appreciate the technique for like 1930s that like the little people coming out of the suitcase and going over to the stage with him sitting there at the table like. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, and I like, I wouldn't even know how to do that now, let alone in 1930. Well, we would definitely have help from green screen effects of that nature, but it's clearly shooting on two different stages to and then integrating it into the film itself um through physical melding. Um this is the right. same way you achieve special effects such as the invisible man. I want right. to kind of hold off talking about that special effect because I'm going to talk about Brad Frankenstein eventually and they perfect it. Um, but I will nice. I will note that this isn't the only review within this time frame to have this effect. Hollywood Review of 1929 has a scene where Jack Benny has um, Bess Smith, I believe, uh, in, in a small form. Um, and then he tells her to basically grow and she grows in front of him and it scares the shit out of Jack. And he's just like, holy shit, there's fucking magic. And then he, you know, rightfully gets off the stage and lets Bess do her number. And so... Right. 
I just, you know, it's it's one of those things that whenever I go back to these movies and I see this stuff, just thinking about the innovation and the thought that had to go into something that now we're like, oh, you just do it on a green screen. It's like simple. And and this that's something I will say, like, and I know we kind of talked about it ahead of recording, but the technical acumen in this movie and what they do, it's it's pretty impressive. Like, yeah, I'm always surprised and, and just think like, man, that creativity is it's it's missing now. You know, we've made it so easy to do so many things. Well, we, I think we, we, we missed out on that a little bit. We've missed out on it until you watch Psycho Gorman, which I'm going to be talking about tonight on the Real Nerds podcast. Watch Psycho Gorman, guys. There's a lot of physical shit going on in there that's insane and wonderful. Um, but yes, you're right. There is a physical, <laughs> there is a physical, tangible way they create the effect that is now super easy with a computer. Um and what's more, when he's, it's he seems very, very happy with himself that he carries his band in this suitcase like some kind of like weird god, <laughs> like <laughs> he's like opens it up and he's just like, yes, yes, get out, get out, you're going. It to is kind of strange. Make me money. <laughs> like, <All right. laughs> get to work. And clearly, because it's a special effect where they're imposing, superimposing that effect onto a prior strip of film. The director's John Murray Anderson is clearly telling Whiteman, like, okay, look contented and then twiddle your mustache to suggest you have personality. Like, it's just because he does that and it's kind <laughs> right. of goofy. Because so it he's, is a little goofy. <laughs> un, unlike Jack in 19 in Hollywood Review in 1929, Whiteman's not really responding to the action in the visual effect because it doesn't seem like they have. There's no real reason for him to, frankly, because it's just band members coming out. But then we right. do get the band intro uh, to the different members of the band. And this was something that he did on his stage shows uh, where he would have a directed spotlight and introduce the different members of the band one at a time. Um, so now, is this the actual band? Yes, this was the band as it existed at this point. Um, okay, I wanted because it seems like the brass players are not actually playing their instruments. Well, they're they are, but there's, you know, there there is a lot of use of playback and not always doing everything live on a stage, like live music on stage. Uh, right, and, and I do wonder if that's a because you know it, it's one of those things where like I don't know a lot about uh, brass instruments. I did play a saxophone years ago uh, um, in high school and and what have you. Um, but like when they're like the trumpet players playing and I'm like, I don't think that's how you play a trumpet. So <laughs> I wonder if they were like, just fake it. And he didn't even try to like match up the playing because they knew they weren't going to it was going to, you know, right. Not necessarily line up. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it is it is interesting to see like the con the context of that, because anymore they try not to do that because people notice that sort of thing. But I don't know if in 1930 anyone cared if it lined up or not. Well, I don't think that I don't think it really matters when it comes to the end of the day because you are getting the message across because there's certain sections in this film where the singers are clearly not synced up correctly. And I don't right. know if that has to do with the de degradation of the quality of this film as time wore on. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, and that's, I mean, I'm just picking at nits here, but I oh, just yeah, thought it was no. funny. I was watching it and I'm like, eh, it seems a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Now I will say with that introduction, we do get, uh, a beautiful Technicolor shot of uh, the banjo player playing his music and the camera backs off a little bit and allows a shadow to grow in the back yes. uh, amidst the green and blue or the green and red light. It's kind of amazing. It's almost looks it like a nightmare really of the banjo. Like 
I mean, yeah. I mean, like, well, and it's interesting too because the way the way the shadow grows too, it's almost like someone was moving the light as well as the camera being moved. Right, which, um, it creates a really cool effect. Yeah, which which could fall in line similar similarly similarly to how you would see certain shadow effects play off in Spielberg films like Raiders of the Lost Ark where you have them walking through the frame and then you have a shadow of them walking through the frame corresponding and it's something that you have to actually choreograph. Um, in which yeah. he got that from Curtiz in uh, Adventures of Robin Hood is what he uh, proclaims. So, um, And then, but the, but the, the, the number's nice. It introduces us to this band and we get... right the different people playing their instruments or pretending to play their instruments. <laughs> yeah. And, and to, to that end, extremely talented musicians. Cause they're, they're playing quite, uh, aggressively <laughs> for lack of a better term. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it, it's very, it's certainly impressive. Yeah. And they're, and what's more, they're getting their, uh, they're, they're showing off what makes them a popular band of this era, um, with their different, forms of symphonic jazz and corresponding but then we move into this large-scale like elaborate sort of ballet um well actually no first we introduced the girls after we introduced the boys with sit dancing where they just sit oh yeah and use their hands and then use their feet before getting up it's i think sit dancing needs to come back aaron because that's i the, do too it's, yeah it's a it's an easy form of dance anybody can do it we need to have a lot of chairs set up in clubs when they reopen after the pandemic where everybody does sit dancing to to uh amongst other things like dj beats because i think that's gonna that we we're gonna need a baby boom we're going to need a baby yeah. boom after the pandemic. And the only way to make it happen, Aaron, is through sit dancing. You sit down. It's true. You do syncopated yeah. hand movements, syncopated leg movements. And then you say to your bow, I like the way you sit dance. Now let's make out in the back of my car. <laughs> like, <laughs> the the roaring 20s are back, my dude. We got to embrace them. Yeah, like I, if sit dancing was the thing, oh, that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know? yeah Bring and, it back. And we need to find another innovation to, to completely upend cinema because everybody thinks it's streaming, but I think it's going to be holograms. So like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody's going to be like, holograms aren't cinema, um, except for Martin. Right. Scor- oh, I, 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 oddly enough, Martin Scorsese will be the one who goes like, well, you know, it's interesting. We can use that technology in various different ways. You know, like I use CGI for makeup in the Irishman. We can easily, 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 motherfuckers. We could easily make a hologram pure cinema. That's what we could do. Um, right. anyway, <laughs> enjoy my three and a half yeah, hour movie on the meditation of toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> Starring all men. Star- starring all men. But it was important that I didn't have Anna Packwood speak, because if I had her speak, it would lose all the importance in the reality of the scene. Totally. Absolutely. 100%. And actually, technically, I agree with Martin Scorsese's decision to do that, even though I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> I get why Still people... Haven't seen it, so. Oh, it's great. It's great. You should watch it, Aaron. It's on Netflix. Or if you um, want to be cool, get the Criterion and compel them to then give me Buster Scruggs on Blu-ray. Uh, but right. <laughs> anyway, though, we move on from the sit dancing to this bridal veil sequence, which is really like a ballet. Um, and yeah, so, it kind of is. And so in in a sense, the number is not really jazz, but it's like... As most of the music in this movie is not really yeah, jazz. Yeah, it's not really jazz. It's dance, 
band, but then it turns into ballet musicals. So what are we doing here exactly? Yeah, which, um, which is it really? Um, but the bridal veil sequence is beautiful looking. Like it is like very pretty to look at. Like no yeah. no skin off the bones of the technical crew pulling off the technicolor that they're doing, where white is very prominent. Um, right. With these bridal veil sequences and whatnot, but it, it just tells a and, basic marriage story. So. Right. And according to Universal, it's the largest veil ever made. The largest veil ever. Now, is that a point of actual pride, Aaron, or is that a point of stupid pride? <laughs> I would I would categorize that as stupid pride. Stupid pride. Okay, cool. Stupid yeah, pride. <laughs> we, you know, it's there. Yeah. It's, it's worth noting. I mean, like, when you see a veil, you take notice of it. That's not, that, there's not even a question of that, because we don't see veils today anymore. So you have to point it out. Like, like a funny hat, you have to point it out. Yeah. Like I, exactly, I've, yeah. I've learned that through film club. You see a veil or a hat or any kind of fun accessory, you point it out. You point it out loud and and make note of the fact that this movie contains copious amounts of hats or veils or flowers and hair. Um, <laughs> right. Um, and then we get, um, uh, we get this. Uh, well, by the way, I will say she is way too happy about that veil. She's way too happy about that veil. Like it's like a magic veil. That then like recalls her past or something. It's it's all over the goddamn place, um, and um, yeah. <laughs> but but there is like a cloudy kind of soft f- soft feel on the lens to kind of emanate a dream. Um, it's similar to like those Cook lenses that give off that misty effect um, that makes a movie look like a movie. Um, and then we get. Um, uh, a number about love. <laughs> it's Paul Whiteman. It's, I guess. Yeah. Question mark. Is this about love? I don't. I don't know. Because this seems like some fucked up love. Um. But it has uh Jeannie Lang, and Paul Whiteman. And Paul Whiteman's again not doing a damn thing because he's like, I'm not a fucking actor. I'm just gonna stand right. and sit here with Jeannie Lang while she sings. And that's it. Uh, that's all I'm going to fucking do. Um, and then, uh, but she's singing about, I want to love you and cuddle you and whatnot in a, in a form and fashion that doesn't work today because it sounds incredibly creepy. It's not, and it, and it's not designed to be that way per se. It's just, it just falls on weird ears today. Um, I'd argue that the following scene falls on even stranger ears. (laughs) Yeah, that one's, pretty weird william kent and grace hayes then sing a number where grace hayes is basically roughing up the shit out of william kent um while telling her why, telling him why she loves him and then and she has this kind of like bold bravado type of voice and then william kent has i don't know what this voice is it's either a baby or some kind of weird martian i or it's blended between the two, but regardless, it's it falls into this stereotype that you find in comedy of this era where meek men marry strong women, and as mm-hmm. a result, they are bullied by their wives um, and treated like crap by their wives, when in reality, that's not how real life works. Um I mean, like, I guess in general, I will say in general, this is a stereotype that permeates pop culture and radio shows that I love where I'm like, I don't need this. I get it. I get why you did it. Then you don't need it. It's not like 
it's not so much offensive as it is just like just like come on you don't you don't need this you're doing fine with the comedy you've got right now you don't need this um right exactly um so like but the performers in it are really good like Jeannie lang's got a interesting voice and william kent and grace hayes are showing off what they can do hayes had more scenes but they were cut for time and kent Kent is interesting. He had a specialty of playing drunk, which he will later do in another comedy sketch. Um, but he was also, but Hayes was known on radio, and so they they had some vaudeville background. And I'm not going to go through every performer in the film, only because I would want to talk about all of their respective histories, and we're trying to focus on the movie. But someday I will do a spinoff series where I go through each of the performers run by one, kind of how I want to do it with it. Uh, it's a mad, mad, mad world. Um, but then the final part of that sequence is Nello day and the Tommy Sextet, uh, Tommy Saxon Sextet performing this final dance number where I'm like, okay, at the very least I get like a beautiful woman surrounded by a bunch of dudes in tuxedos doing that cliche. That isn't, right. that isn't offensive so much as just nobody does it today. Uh, like it's, it's just never there unless you're doing Chicago, you're not doing it. Um, and then, and in between all these moments, by the way, we are getting blackouts because it is similar to how you would black out the curtain, um, to change the scene. They specifically do this a lot with the comedy sketches. Um, right. And, um, and in the number we were talking about, like the one thing to point out is like this man singing to the, the, the woman is singing to her man, how she wants to love him, but she's roughing him up. And again, falls into that stereotype. Um, and, um, and I mean, I will say the the final lady Nello Day has some acrobatic skills that are fucking unmatched. Like hands down, like <laughs> she could be in a Marvel movie with the moves that she's pulling. Um, right. And then we get this first comedy sketch, Ladies of the Press, which is a play by William Griffith. It's like literally a one set scene. We see the uh, sets uh, pop up in a stop motion fashion as if they're just appearing out of magic. Again, this movie is fueled by dark magic. And <laughs> right. um, and uh, <laughs> we basically get this woman-run newspaper, which sounds really cool because not only are they leading the path for journalism, but they can predict the fucking future, Aaron. The This woman <laughs> predicts that a murder's going to happen within seconds of it happening. It's a fucking wizard movie <laughs> now this is a kind of comedy that does persist in radio shows of the era too i know this joke backwards and forwards in different shows of the era jack benny does it a lot you have like people doing like newspaper sketches they're going to talk make fun of the fact of finding news or making news um which obviously today news has taken on a different form of 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 weird I don't I, the front page and his girl Friday are weirdly omniscient of what we got for the last four years um, and not in the ways yeah. they wanted it to be. Um, <laughs> and so, but the scene ends after this murder that was predicted. And then what you didn't see off screen was Charles Xavier coming up to these newspaper women and saying like, you don't need to run a newspaper. What you need to do is join my school. Like I, I will, I will shelter you. I will guide you. And I will teach you how to fight a man who could control metal. Um, so, and then right after that, we get, uh, the rhythm boys, the rhythm boys appear and they first appear in the shadow because we need to hold out on showing my beautiful face as long as possible. Boom, 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 boom. And <laughs> finally the lights go up and they're singing, um, when the blackbird met the bluebird or the bluebird met the blackbird, 
two birds meet. And <laughs> um, and uh, we get to see our real first close-up of Bing Crosby on screen. And I will say that he's a handsome-looking motherfucker. Um, granted, he was not the best human being in the world. But um, at this time, <laughs> nobody knew that. All they knew is is that, like, hey, who's this crooner who's uh, treating treating music like it's a conversation? This is almost as if, though, it's innovative. Um, right. And um, and the Rhythm Boys' involvement in this film has some baggage behind it to an extent. Um, uh, they recorded as part of Whiteman's band uh, and then on their own with Barris on piano, um, Harry Barris. Um and uh, Crosby, as we said before, sings "Music Hath Charms" over the title credits, uh, and in the animated sequence, um, Bing Crosby went on a lot of benders during this movie, like drank <laughs> a shit ton. Where he's just like, "Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. It seems like I just need to booze the fuck up if I'm gonna keep doing this bullshit. Like, you know, they won't put me on Hollywood. They will." Whiteman's treating me like a piece of shit. So maybe I just need to drink so much that I'll crash my car on Hollywood Boulevard and go to jail for 60 days because boom, 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 I'm the old Rona. Uh, and, um, oh, and by the way, he talked back and wisecracked to the judge. Um, so as punishment, <laughs> Whiteman replaced him for a later song coming up called The Song of the Dawn, which is then sang by John Bowles. Um, and John Bowles is coming up here in a second, um, but he is he is known for playing Victor Moritz in 1931's Frankenstein. That is what you would know him from today. You would literally know him from nothing else, really, of any <laughs> actual significance. And he and he kind of declines, and his last film ends up being in 1952. So, but. At this time, he's a vocalist and he sings the Song of the Dawn, and it happened in Monterey, um, which mm. is what we transition into here. Um, the Monterey right. number is like it's kind of dated because of its portrayal of Spain, but it's yeah. it's harmless. It's harmless. It's it's like is that the kind of wedding scene? Well, it's no, it's it's well, she's like she's kind of, but it's like set amongst a, amidst a like Mexicali kind of backdrop. Um, right, right. With the senoritas dancing, if you will, and uh, right, right. It's basically she's about, just in like a white dress. Yes, that, to is. me screams wedding dress, but I yeah. don't know if that was the intention. Yeah, no. Well, he's sitting, he's sitting at a piano first, dreaming about the girl he left because apparently he's a jerk, and then you know, it right. kind of goes and to then this, it goes to the painting, and then it transitions to this. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a fine enough scene. It's it's uh, nothing super yeah. major or anything like it doesn't doesn't affect the non-plot of this movie <laughs> like john bulls right, can right, technically yeah. sing and he certainly sounds different um than other uh singers in the in the number um but mm-hmm. uh you know pining for the heart uh, pining heartbroken person it has beautiful sense of color again we are treated to that technicolor beauty um and then it decides to uh, uh it, it transitions into another comedy sketch called in conference um wait and, and and stop me if you've heard this one before, Aaron. You're making out with your wife, and then your stenographer comes in and is appalled by the fact that you're making out with your wife, and so she leaves your employ. That that's a joke, right? That's a it, th- 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 it, it, 
it seems like a joke. I, I guess it. That... I guess it does. I mean, if you're living in 1930, I guess this is a joke. Here's the thing. I've listened. So. <laughs> I've listened to comedy from the era, and I've also listened to vaudeville jokes and read vaudeville jokes that are ten times funnier than this. I don't know who's writing this bullshit. I really like. Right. It's it's not to be harsh <laughs> on the on the content per se. I'm just like. Right. Charles MacArthur and Harry Ruskin are writing cheap material that I don't approve of. So I'm, just, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm kind of just like, I'm done. Like, I can't, I know. I, I'm sorry. Like you, if your movie doesn't have Jack Benny right now at this point, right now, then this isn't worth watching the comedy. It's worth watching the musical numbers at this point. Um, right. I mean, that's really to me what stands out. Like these little comedy one-offs, I was like, Eh, you know it is and then you get into the music and i'm like okay cool i, I will we're back i will say this falls into the same line with hollywood review of 1929 and other like the first broadway melody and stuff like that where you are watching what vaudeville looked like to an right. ex- to an extent obviously it's a lot more glamorous than vaudeville vaudeville is like a ranges the gamut from elegant to downright disgusting when it comes to the environments they played in like they the Marx Brothers played in some shitholes before they got to Broadway. Like they played in some absolute <laughs> right. shitholes. Jack certainly had his share of shithole places he played, along with Burns and Allen and Fred Allen. And um, Bergen and McCarthy had their own share. But, but, well, not Bergen and McCarthy. Bergen with his dummy, Charlie McCarthy. <laughs> right. Well, though, really, they're two people. There have always been two people in my mind. And Mortimer Snurd's their third friend. Um, but uh, at any rate... We are seeing a representation of these performers as they existed at this time. And it's a subject I'm going to go further into down the line, especially when talking about Vitaphone shorts, because Vitaphone is really the last actual record of a lot of vaudeville acts as they existed at the time they were performing them on stage. The only people we don't have a visual record of in that form are really technically the Marx Brothers, but we get it in the form of their adaptations of the coconuts and animal crackers. Um, mm-hmm. And in Hollywood review of 1929, you do see a version of what Jack Benny was doing on stage. So there are merits to these comedy scenes. It's just that they suck. Like they picked the wrong ones. <laughs> like they could, Universal couldn't afford anything, Aaron. They couldn't afford right. any, any goddamn <laughs> they were, thing. <laughs> they were so broke. They were they just, already wasted $5 million on this movie. They wasted $5 million on that, a big chunk of which went to Paul Whiteman, who said, I don't want to act. Why are you paying me? At, what? what you, no. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, if Paul Whiteman had ended up becoming the producer of this film, like the full-on producer, and just being like, you guys are wasting money in the weirdest places. Like, I don't right. understand <laughs> a goddamn bit of this. Like, I did not hunt in Africa to become the king of jazz. And and let's be honest, Universal, I don't deserve that fucking crown anyway. Um, right. <laughs> I'm like self-aware Paul Whiteman. Right. <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> guys, 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 there's institutionalized racism in the country. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> um, but anyway, they move into... Um, they move into a number where... Where Charles Irwin's like, one day Paul decided to fuck off. And so the band was left to fend for itself, so it made Jack White perform for them. (laughs) (laughs) And we do get this number with Jack White, who uh, he's kind of like a low-rent version of Jimmy Durante, if that's such a thing. Like, (laughs) he does... 
a, this weird version of Old Black Joe and then synchronizes into a song about owning a fish mart. So he moves from a black stereotype where he says the phrase yuck, 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 which is yuck. Um, right. Disgusting, as in that. Um, but then he moves into owning a fish store uh, that dives into Jewish stereotypes in a weird way. But it's y- the Yiddish humor in it feels off-putting. I yeah, don't say I don't <laughs> the same. I, yeah, I don't know how to receive that information because dialect humor was very popular at the time and many people of the time saw it as a connecting tissue for overcoming differences in these commingled neighborhoods where you had different sects of European immigrants coming overseas and living in the same tenement areas. So right. it's a tricky subject, but the number itself is it's entertaining enough. I mean, it's not like it's it, it's interesting to watch something that would look better live. Like this is something right. that I would much prefer to see live because the lighting changes. There's interactions with the band. This would be fun live on a stage on a film. There's a disconnect. I've been talking about this lately where when you try to do something that works better for a live audience in these films of the era, there's a disconnect that's always going to be there because of the fact that you don't have a live audience. Right. Um, and I mean, it's the same. Like we honestly just this past weekend um, did our first like digital concert for, yeah. you know, so like modern pandemic times. Um, and it, it was interesting because watching it, they really captured the sound of being at a live venue. Like I found myself wanting to like, you know, stand up and like, move and sing along and do like what I do at a show. But then there was also that like, Oh, but there's no people and there's no, you know, like it just didn't, there was that, that uh, aspect that was missing where it felt almost like it was supposed to, but something was off. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's a struggle with this and it's a struggle. You know, I have a, a friend who does stage acting and they were talking about translating stage, stage plays to film and how it's just so hard to do because it's so different how you think about those things. So yeah, things like that where you, you rely on that interaction when you don't have it. I think you, there is a disconnect and back, you know, in this era, it makes sense why they were doing that. Cause they're like, well, what do we, what do we normally show an audience? You know, like how do but, we, um, how do we sell is... a new technology? We don't fucking understand. I know uh, just transplant the stage onto the screen. That works. <laughs> like Exactly. Yeah. Now, now so it's interesting like to go back and look at it in, in this context, you know, historically and go yeah you know this doesn't really work (laughs) right but it but it is but it is interesting to watch them attempt to move into what would then become the the elegant form of the musical which we'll end up talking about on the next episode with ryan johnson when it comes to vincent Mm -hmm. minnelli um but um uh then we uh uh oh and they also do a little quick bit where like he pretends to die and they said they got me and the band member responds well they should have gotten you sooner and i'm like yep (laughs) yes they should have yeah Um, yeah exactly this guy should have died the moment i saw him on screen anyway (laughs) (laughs) uh and then uh we get this band member rotating set um in the form of a public park number um and the whole idea of the song is how hard it is to fuck on a park bench <laughs> 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 like isn't necking on a bench so inconvenient 
Um, but then it's okay because then they find a way to roll in the grass, and it comes in the form of this rolling set that is fucking massive, Aaron. Like, goddamn <laughs> huge. And, like, rotates yeah. and shows all the members of the band, like, swooning their different respective ladies. And then at the end of the number, two important weird fucking things happen. First, Paul Whiteman <laughs> is sitting with an African-American child who is who is whose hairstyle is designed to look incredibly offensive. Um it's it's right. just it's just there and it's fucking weird yeah. and I don't like it. It is weird. Yeah. He's not like doing anything horrible. It's just it's there. Somebody intentionally set this up in such a way and I'm like I don't know what this is supposed to be. If this is meant to be progressive, you're not doing it right. <laughs> like <laughs> Right. Literally doesn't work. And also, you're being called the king of jazz and you doing this seems incredibly disingenuous. But I also don't know right. if Whiteman yeah. was looking into that because he's just a band leader at this point. He's not into the art of film, so he's not going to know what placement means, but or he right. did know and, and just probably, didn't Yeah, or he knew and just didn't yeah. give a fuck, you know. Like, right. And it's also, you know, maybe it wasn't his call at this point. They're like this is what you're doing because we've already re- wasted 5 million dollars on this movie. So well, that's your fucking fault because I'm not a fucking actor. Why were you trying to write <laughs> right. scripts around a person who can't fucking act? God damn it, Universal. Um, and then the <laughs> other thing that happens, which is nightmare fuel for any age, is Paul Whiteman's face transposed into the moon, and then the moon winks. And if you thought yeah. that the moon in a trip to the moon looks creepy, you haven't seen Paul Whiteman's face in the goddamn moon because it, yeah, George, Paul Whiteman doesn't look like unappealing or anything like, or, or like hideous. And we're not here to judge on people's looks, but making his face, the moon feels wrong. It just feels wrong. I'm, I'm not sure how to process it in my mind without, uh, literally wanting to beat the head onto the table, Aaron. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a very strange uh decision. Yeah, it's almost like an effect for the sake of an effect. Yes, it, it is. They were like, "Hey, we can do this. Let's do it." Not because there's any like real reason to do it. Yeah, you know, kind of like Avatar. There's no real reason right. to make Avatar, but I have the technology to do it, so I'll just remake Fern Cully with blue cats. Like, I don't right. need to do this, but I'm James Cameron, and I don't give a shit what you think. I'm, I'm James gonna... Cameron. I do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. So. If I want to take five years to make three sequels that may or may not exist, that's my own goddamn business with my goddamn money. Um, and, right. and, and, and and if I want to really... He's renegotiating his terms with the devil for those movies. That's why they haven't come out yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh John, you thought you were going to get away with three sequels at once. Oh no 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 I never won't allow that. You can you've got to make them all at once and you've got to make sure that people doubt you every step of the way because that's the only way they'll pay you billions of dollars. <laughs> These are my terms. I'm the devil. Gotta go through stress before you become a billionaire again. Um <laughs> Shout out to Frank Nelson for inspiring my devil voice. Um, uh, there you go. <laughs> and then we move away. Um, oh, by the way, the moon winks. So yeah, uh, that that's that's ridiculous. Then we move into a another sketch called "All's Noisy on the Eastern Front," which uh, feels disingenuous to say the fucking least. <laughs> 
I know. Let's make fun of World War One, and also let's make fun of women who had to work in desperate measures in order to acquire basic services during World War Fucking One. Like that's right. That's a that's this outdated. This is funny. This is outdated comedy up the wazoo, Aaron. Now the the idea of a woman having multiple lovers is not the offensive part. The offensive part is her saying like, "Oh, you brought me chocolates. Oh, you brought me American cigarettes," and I'm like, "Ah, damn it! Like this is something people had to actually do during World War One to survive." this isn't funny um they might have seen it as funny at the time but it doesn't feel the same way when we know the costs of war in actuality um without without a temperance movement or an isolationist movement shoving shit down our throat you know it's there's a difference between anti-war movement then and now um right and and, and they think too it there was a disconnect too i think at the time you know you didn't have communication channels were not as immediate they weren't as necessarily effective um so people weren't as aware of the the horrors of what was really going on no you're right no the 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 amount of information traveling would be very different you'd be hearing more firsthand experience before you hear anything significant that's why the it's why the work that George Stevens did at the camps at Dachau and uh, Auschwitz was important because they needed documentation to show people what happened at the concentration camps uh, because otherwise right, exactly. nobody was going to believe it. To. Yeah, otherwise right. nobody was going to believe it except for the people who choose to not believe it anyway because they think it's Hollywood making Hollywood stuff. And I'm like, you're a fucking racist moron. Um yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the hol- yeah, the Holocaust happened, guys, and it needs to be remembered so it doesn't be fucking repeated. Um, and uh, but anyway, and they blow up a wall, and all these soldiers want to make out with this one French lady. So ha ha ha, that's hilarious. And then, <laughs> uh, and then we get Will Hall playing the fiddle. Um, Will Hall from the Whiteman Orchestra. I want to learn more about this guy because this guy's kind of incredible. Yeah, no, this is a killer scene. Yeah, he has scuba fi- flippers on for some reason. He's he's playing. Um, uh, Pop goes the weasel in a way that should both be admired and feared. Um, like all musicians, anybody who's in a rock band and thinks they're the shit hasn't seen Will Hall play Pop Goes the Weasel on his fucking violin. Cause like that's the thing you notice about certain vaudeville acts and like acts who are this distinguished. Like they would make music look interesting on stage. Like they would make playing an instrument look interesting on stage if you watch the movie here comes cookie you get a drum player who starts on the drums and then literally starts tapping his drumsticks on anything and making it a percussive rhythm and it's kind of amazing to watch him do it while doing flips at the same time and then he and then after the fiddle he plays the stars and stripes forever with a bicycle pump and even though he does an amazing job aaron i do appreciate him being hit over the head with a chair at the end of the scene like I don't know why. <laughs> I appreciate him yeah, being just a great great way to close that out. Yeah, it's a great way to close out really any bit is to hit somebody with a chair. That's kind of that's kind of how I wish La La Land ended is that Emma Stone hit Ryan Gosling with a chair. <laughs> that's that the end of the movie. Cut to black. Yeah, Done. exactly. You just you'll wonder what as you go home why the fuck that happened after this delightful, you know, love romance man's musical that she just hit him with a chair um, um right and then uh, i'll say the next uh the next bit the african dance thing um you know uh, i i don't know who's doing it because it's all in shadow um i just love the way it's shot uh it's so cool the 
the the big shadow on the wall behind the performer it's kind of like the banjo thing but with something a little more like visually yeah interesting going on um it's just a really cool so the, scene. you're talking about the african drum number correct yes which by the way i will point out does address that the birth of jazz starts with african americans in the weirdest slashed offensive kind of. way imaginable by saying it came from the heart of africa and i'm like that's yeah whoa now <laughs> yeah no don't do that please this is that there's a much yeah. more nuanced history to jazz that you are ignoring like you are being you are being you are being broad and dumb um but the dancer right. <laughs> is jacques cartier who is a white man but he is not doing blackface mm-hmm. or anything like that he's wearing black lacquer um, like a big black lacquer suit, and it's more designed to be a shadow effect, and it's similar to a dance he did in the 1927 Broadway production of Golden Dawn. And the lacquer was designed mm-hmm. specifically to reflect the bright lights. Um, this number looks incredible, and it is a good does, segue. Yeah. If, you, if you are trying to imply the history of jazz from that respect at this time, it is an interesting segue from this moment to Rhapsody in Blue. Yeah. To your point, yeah, I mean, it is just like beautifully, beautifully shot, and it looks amazing. Yeah. Um, and that's the duality of this, right? Is it's like it's frustrating because I know it's a white dude, but it's, um, it is just a cool sequence. Um, and for this time, like, a, not something I would expect to see, you yeah. know, from 1930. No, absolutely. So. Yeah, no, it's and it's remarkable that it exists and it, it is treated with respect, even though. Again, it has the baggage, but it's still beautiful to watch. Um, mm-hmm. And then as we, as I was saying, though, it transitions into Rhapsody in Blue. Now, if we were going to talk about George Gershwin and Rhapsody in Blue, we'd be here all fucking day because that is a loaded discussion filled with history. What you should know is that George Gershwin wrote this for Whiteman's Orchestra. They played it in a con- major concert venue, and it exploded. Um, this number exploded. Um, so obviously mm-hmm. it's going to be in this movie. And right, um, and and actually, it's one of the more impressive set pieces in the film too. Yeah, and and you know, let's talk a little bit about the history of it. It was um, it was the premiere in a concert called an American an experiment in modern music, held on February twelfth, nineteen twenty four, at Eleonian Hall, Eolian Hall in New York City, by Whiteman and his band, um, and it uh. It kept carrying on. This was the definition of Whiteman's version of jazz, symphonic jazz. Um, and uh, But this particular version of the number with the visual acumen behind it, which shows a slew of visual techniques that, frankly, it's more impressive to just watch the clip on YouTube, which is available. But there was a problem with this particular uh, uh, uh with this particular moment because of the technicolor. So uh, uh, the green dye in the technicolor can actually be used to appear peacock blue under some conditions, but acceptable results in this case would require careful handling. So they were trying to create this blue effect. Um, And so the art director, Herman Rossi, and the production and the production director, John Murray Anderson, they came up with a solution. Murray Anderson and Rossi say... They do tests uh, with various different fragments and pigments and using an all gray and silver background in the bluish aspect of the dye 
was set off to the best advantage. So filters were used to inject blue, pale blues into the scene while filming, combined with the different fragments and fabrics and pigments they're using on these costumes. And in the final film, you get shades of it rather than bright colors. Um, this is no different than if you're trying to film a black and white movie. You don't want to just put any old clothes on people. You want to film it with colors that read well as black and white on film. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it does appear in the original two Technicolor print. The, uh, the Some have described it as Rhapsody and Turquoise. And uh, mm-hmm. so it, so it kind of came out in that fashion. But now... Um, it's now been uh, the the original two component negatives have survived to the point where they can read they can fix it to make the blues look truer and more saturated than they even appeared to audiences in the 30s. So there's correction that can be done with it. Um, whether you agree with that or right. not is your own determination. There's uh, ethics involved with art, um, but the music sequence right. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking beautiful. Um, you get a guy with a clarinet what? and a cape. <laughs> yeah. I do. I will say that you know, if you um, if your intention was for it to be blue, I don't see anything wrong with making it actually blue. You know, personally. Well, I think they were trying to go for um, this specific hue that didn't quite work out, but um, they do get it because right. I mean, obviously green's going to be more prominent in this because that's what you have available with that two color spectrum. Um, right. And but also another thing to note in this is that the set pieces give it even more elaborate. We have different you know archways and rotating sets moving in and out there's a giant fucking piano that the orchestra comes out of and people are playing this giant piano as if though they're lily tomlin and the incredible shrinking woman (laughs) it's it's a if you smoked weed watching this movie i'd completely understand like i would completely i won't join you but i will it's a bit of a trip yeah oh yeah absolutely (laughs) if if i was still smoking weed aaron i'd be doing this every goddamn night (laughs) like (laughs) um And so uh, they they go through the uh, the sequence, um, and uh, right out of the gate, right. So we, it's it's almost like this is the halfway point for us. We also get kaleidoscope effects, which are really cool. Look beautiful in that Technicolor. Like they look like a fucking dream. Like, but then yeah. we get a sketch called Forevermore. Uh, just a sketch about the perils of drinking and being stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's again, our wonderful friend from that awkward musical number, um, William Kent playing, doing his drunk bit for people. I will say he's really good at playing a drunk person. He's very good at that drunk act. Um, but, uh, it, it, the, the conversation ends up leading to the proclamation that goldfish is the most faithful animal for mankind. And I don't disagree with him. <laughs> yeah. Because I've been given no other reason to suggest that other animals are truly loyal. I mean, dogs' affections wander. Cats don't give a shit what you do because they don't give a fuck about you. Um, but, right. a gold, but, a, but a goldfish does seem to genuinely care when you feed it. Um, so yeah. it's probably trying to, trying to avoid the toilet. Um, and then, yeah. and then there's, we, there's something there. Yeah. But then we get Ragamuffin Romeo, which is an interesting number because I could see somebody having an issue with this, but I don't think they should because it's right. It's a loose form of like loose limb ballet. And you see this kind of weird contortion angle to it, which I believe this form of dance 
isn't out of the realm of uh, isn't out of the realm of popularity really per se. I don't see it done a lot today, but it is very prominent in vaudeville and prominent in movies of the 30s and 40s where you see these kind of loose-limbed dancers like Ben Blue who like really knew how to move their body like a noodle. Um and in this particular case right. it's like a rag doll and her rag doll boyfriend and they call him Ragamuffin. Yeah, Romeo I, and just... <laughs> I'll say the, the 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 problem I have with it is that just like it hurts my old body to watch this. <laughs> just yeah. like oh, that it, looks it, painful. It, it offends my age. <laughs> that yeah, I agree. That it offends my age, yeah. Aaron. That's 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 true. That's yeah. the offensive part. The offensive part is that it hurts my goddamn soul to think, man, I could have moved like this if I had like not eaten like shit for years. Like, <laughs> and right. I'm, I could, if I moved like that, I would. I would permanently break something oh, and just never recover. Oh, oh you'll <laughs> die. You'll fucking die. Um, and, yeah, I'd, that's probably what would happen. I would oh, just yeah. die. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, given the way it's constructed, it's almost like hobo ballet. So it's, it's, so it's yeah. kind of interesting how it all plays out. Um, and also, there's one point where in the dance, I'm pretty sure he does a roundhouse kick to her butt, and it's really weird. Again, not offensive, just fucking weird. Like <laughs> It's yeah, just the, weird. <laughs> the, the dance move, I don't think anybody was thinking roundhouse kicks at that time. They, they Nobody was thinking about Jean-Claude Van Damme at that point. They're just like, oh, this is part of our number. Like Nobody's going to try to repeat this in crazy action movies that may or may not be offensive even by 30 years later when they were made, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and then um, the next number uh, deals with the idea of having uh, – it's a sketch that has the dangers of peeping through a keyhole – and the um, announcer says, like, a, a good show, like a good sauce, needs a dash of spice. And then we see uh, a man and a woman making out. The husband knocks on the door. He's like, oh, no, no, my husband's here. Hide in the closet. Husband comes in and is like, what, what was that? And they, I'm sorry to do this to you another, again, Aaron. We got another annoying kid on our hands. And uh, thankfully, he's only here for a couple seconds. But uh, he's going like, there's the boogeyman in the closet the boogeyman in the closet and he looks like the devil and so the guy opens the door and he you know he sees the 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 lover in the closet and he's just like how dare you scare children like that like so husband's fucking um and once again i'm sorry to give you annoying kid movies this seems to be the motif in your life um it does yeah it seems like you just are out to punish me i'm trying to i'm trying to warn you about the dangers of having children there and they may turn out like the people the kid and the man who knew too much and i'm just trying to warn you um it's it's been effective i've i've been been warned away from it yep but then thank you for that no i hey i'm i'm here for you buddy friends to the end right but anyway, um, but right. then we get one of the greatest music numbers, which is also uh, concocted of Black Magic, in the form of uh, Happy Feet, uh, which is a popular standard that you've heard in such films as The Aviator, um, done by other trios. Here it's done by the Paul Whiteman Orchestra with the Rhythm Boys really leading the charge. Now, this is very much a jazz number. This is very much a jazz number. This is a jazz dance number. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, here we have the rhythm boys singing it. We start off actually with magic shoes tapping with the, tapping themselves, and I'm like, well, again, dark magic is running this movie. Yeah, um, and exactly. And we get you know that beautiful rendition by the rhythm boys, and then we get this col- this kind of like weird like mirror effect with two German ladies' heads uh, popping out of what appears to be some kind of silver sheet and singing the lyrics before they then turn into normal people again with legs and dance. Um, and they have some kind of contortionist kind of feel to them to an extent. Uh, but 
they don't even tap tap into the reality of uh, this one dancer who comes in and literally just pulls off Michael Jackson moves before Michael Jackson ever existed. Uh, it is yeah. insane. This guy is crazy. This guy yeah. is my goddamn hero. I want it. I want his life. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the the ending of the number does have all the lady dancers in their you know bob cut hair growing to 50 feet tall and destroying the city with their rhythmic dancing. <laughs> yeah, you didn't tell me this was also a monster movie, I which did. I'm pretty excited about. I, I buried the lead. This is a secret Godzilla origin movie. Godzilla was one. No, well, I mean, it is a universal movie, right? Well, so yeah, if but we're uni- thinking about it, yeah, like this is an original. The original universal monster was not Dracula, Aaron. It was 50 foot German, uh, Ger- German, um, uh, uh, women of the twenties. Tap dancers. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, this is, th- this is, this is just, this is just how Universal Monsters started. This is how they got their start. And it's only for a sequence, so thankfully it's not overwhelming the legacy of Boris Karloff and Bill Lugosi. Yeah, no, it's just it's like an insert yeah. shot, but it is notable to be like, there's a fucking monster movie stuck in here for some reason. Um, right. <laughs> But then the number ends, and then Charlie Irwin thanks the girls, and Paul Whiteman decides to act because he's like, "Hold on, why why am I not getting any credit?" And I'm like, "Motherfucker, it sounds like you didn't want to be on this movie. What the hell is this scene in here?" But it's basically right. it's basically an excuse to show Whiteman, quote unquote, dancing. And we see from a wide, right. far-off shot Whiteman dancing. Except it's then revealed at the end that it's not Paul Whiteman. I don't know. I did. I did. did. Paul Whiteman. He found a way to not do anything at all costs. Right. <laughs> and steal all the Just... Universal's goddamn stupid money. <laughs> right. Uh, and then there was this satire of a Magic Lantern show that is kind of chopped up to bits, um, but it is like a parody mm-hmm. of these eighteen. 18- hundred songs and uh at the time an audience probably would have felt the humor of this more than we do today it feels super antiquated today but i would see an audience laughing right, at this because sure. they are making fun of it they aren't really celebrating it because they have an, an intentionally bad singer at the forefront of it um so right. it's it's kind of a lost on us thing but it is kind of beautiful to look at what a Ma- magic lantern show would look like in this era um and yeah. um and then we get John Bowles again, um, who does the song that Crosby was supposed to do before I went to jail after talking back to a judge <laughs> after I drank too much and then ran my car into a fucking light pole or something. I don't know. Did I kill somebody? Did I, Bing Crosby, kill somebody? I really need to know because I really don't want this baggage coming up years later. Um, and... Uh, Anyway, no, um, he he doesn't get it. But John Bowles dresses up as a gaucho along with a bunch of other gauchos, and the number looks beautiful, but it's kind of pointless. It, like it's, it's it's almost like even in a movie filled right. with pointless numbers, I'm like, I don't need this. This doesn't matter. You could have cut this and given. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was very out of out of like the blue. Like this came in, and I was like, "What is happening now?" Yeah, like <laughs> to your point of of a movie full of what is happening now moments. This one really was like, I don't know that I needed this in here. But it's it's okay, Aaron, because we're getting to the end of the movie at last. We have uh, an amazing melting pot number. Now there's baggage. Oh yeah, but the melting pot of music. Yeah, no, uh, to be precise, there's baggage attached to this. 
because of what we've talked about since the beginning of the show, which is jazz is a genre pioneered by African-Americans and there are no black people yeah. going into that melting pot. Um, You're on, right. <laughs> on the commentary on the film, the historians point out how difficult it probably would have been to show that because of the fact of state censors, local censors, and specifically censors in the South. If they had seen that, they would have cut that out of the film immediately or refused to show the movie. This isn't uncommon, sadly. Um, we talked a little about right. it in the Jack Benny episode where the only reason you got away with certain things in that movie is because of the character that was set up in radio was so popular that you could get away with certain things. Here, you yeah. couldn't get away with it. And what's more, the predominant... It, it's not predominant. All of the people going in are mainly of white European descent. Um, which yeah, exactly. has an encouraging message of the time for the many immigrants that are living in the country at this time. From a modern lens, we are wondering, well, why isn't there representation of like Asians or Middle Eastern people in it? And the answer is unfortunately racism in the South, racism within Jim Crow segregation laws, racism in Hollywood in general. These are just all matters of fact. Um, but the number outside right. of that is pretty glorious and kind of remarkable. Um, from a technical yeah, standpoint definitely. alone, um, all the all the people play their music, then they go into the melting pot, and then Paul Whiteman looking like a witch with rings flowing up to him from the pot stirs the pot. Paul Whiteman stirs the pot that makes America, Aaron. You so you see, he's not yeah. an actor. He's the founder of America. <laughs> he is. It's true. He is the true founder. Um and actually this sequence, um, Universal had to get permission from Paramount to film this scene because John Murray Anderson lifted the construction of this scene from a melting pot sequence, which was not uncommon in reviews in Broadway. He lifted this from a Paramount uh, melting pot sequence that he shot for a short comedy musical kind of thing. So this was something that they had to be like, uh, okay. Universal had to be like, well, we have no money, but we've got your boy here. So what are you going to do? Are you going to leave us hanging? And Paramount's just like, right. I mean, yeah, sure, I guess. Waste your money. Like, <laughs> you're spending how much money on this movie? God damn it. That's fucking right. stupid. Um, <laughs> right. It's um, crazy. What's wrong with you? Yeah. And then the movie ends with the camera spinning out of goddamn control, uh, focusing on white men as he takes a bow, going like, I took you through a journey through hell, children. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the background, you can see Bing Crosby holding a saxophone for some reason. So I don't know if Bing Crosby had to multitask on this film or what's going on. But um, all I know is 60 days in jail because too drunk. Um, <laughs> and that's the end <laughs> of the movie. Uh, this used in a pre-recorded soundtrack for the film uh, made independent of the filmmaking itself. Um Whiteman insisted on the musical numbers um, uh, featuring his orchestra be recorded to obtain the best sound and to avoid the poor recording conditions of extraneous noise on the soundstage. Um, and uh, as the sound was recorded, it was played on a loudspeaker in the scene while the scene was being filmed and then synchronized to the soundtrack. So not including dialogue. A lot of this is, as we were discussing earlier, pre-recorded. Um, Right. The film was released on April 19th, 1930 at the Criterion Theater in Los Angeles. Um, 
and they fell short of expectations because of course they would. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. <laughs> there's nothing in the movie, sadly, beyond the visual acumen that sells this movie. Whiteman's not a personality. Bing Crosby's given nothing to do. You are relying on stark stock players that have no merit, and unfortunately, the vaudeville acts are relegated to short shrift. Um, right. And but a grand premiere was held on May 2nd, 1930 at the Roxy Theater in New York City, where Whiteman's orchestra, together with George Gershwin and a 125-piece Roxy orchestra, Symphony Orchestra, put on a stage show, and it featured Rhapsody in Blue and uh, Mildred Bailey, backed up by the Roxy Chorus, and was performed five times a day between showings of the film for a week. Um, and then the film continued to play at the Roxy for only one additional week. <laughs> Um, oh, now, here's we get here's where we get into the fun part of this. Uh, the, they expected this repute to repeat or surpass surpass the box office performance of a musical entitled Broadway, which Universal had released in 1939, which is a bit more of a success for them. Um, mm -hmm. That lavish film <laughs> uh, <laughs> had Technicolor sequences and had been in success, so that's part of the reason why this movie is in Technicolor. But the delays in filming caused two developments to occur. One is the public started tiring of these music movie musicals that kept flooding out since the jazz singer um, mm -hmm. and became rampant after the success of Broadway Melody in 1929. Um, and so uh, operettas were also kind of taking that short shrift as well. And so the public got bored with these. Unlike superhero movies, the public got bored with these. And... So during its national release, the film made less than $900,000, which is not good for Universal at the time. Um, mm. And then also the stock market crash happened in 1929, and it caused a full-blown depression. We think of the film industry as something that thrived during the Great Depression, when in actuality it struggled just as much as anybody. If anything, radio was more successful than film during the Great Depression. Right. Now, film did make a lot of money during the Great Depression, but it's but it's in the context of still struggling to figure out what the audience wants as it's going through the great depression. Whereas radio right. is a piece of furniture that you technically only pay one time for, and then hear free entertainment period, even if you're not buying the products that are being sponsored on the air. So this film suffers from a double blow, but it doesn't matter because white men made off with their fucking money. And uh, the right. film received, <laughs> he got his 40% cashed out. He's just like, you guys paid a lot of money to a non-actor. You're fucking stupid. I don't need the net profits. I, I grifted you people. Uh, and now I'm going to use it uh, to hire more African-American uh, writers to help me compose this music that I can then release to the world. I'll unfortunately take a lot of credit for it, and um, I'm sorry for that. But uh, in retrospect, I am still sticking it to the man somehow. Like, now now White <laughs> is just making excuses here. Um, uh, but anyway, the film received a lot of mixed reviews. Uh, a reviewer for the new movie called it a lavish, overproduced disappointment. Uh, and the, the only affected performers were Whiteman and John Bowles. So I don't think this guy has eyes or ears. Yeah, I don't think um, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that he saw the uh, same movie that the rest of us did. 
<laughs> yeah, but the New York Times, uh, in a pretty positively Crowther world, asserted that John Murray Anderson's initial contribution to the Audible screen uh, with the rotund Paul Whiteman reveals this director to be a magician of far greater powers than one imagined, even from his stage compositions. This technicolor potpourri of songs, dancing, and fun is a marvel of camera wizardry, joyous color schemes, charming costumes, and seductive lighting effects. Um, so yeah, they liked it, but again, yeah. this movie <laughs> was not a huge success. There was backlash against this movie, uh, along with other musicals overseas, um, but it did fare better and eventually made a profit uh, there. Now, during the 1930s, this film found its best audience in Cape Town, South Africa, where it played for 17 return engagements. So the movie did make money, but not initially. It took some time. Um, and right. It did win the Academy Award for Best Art Direction by Herman Rossi. The other movies that were nominated were Bulldog, Drummond, The Love Parade, Sally, and The Vagabond King, movies that nobody talks about anymore. Um Right. In 2016, <laughs> the film was included for the film registry after a huge restoration in 2013. Now, here's where we get into the fun part of this, because you have also done film restoration. Um, this film originally was released at 105 minutes long. It was reissued in 1933 for 65 minutes. Entire sequences and numbers are removed for the reissue, while others trimmed out just a few shots. One cut for the 1933 re-release was a sketch with William Kent about a suicidal flute player with the Whiteman Orchestra performing performing Capricci Venue uh, as background music. I don't believe we saw that number. Uh, so I don't believe so either, yeah. No, exactly. Now, when they cut segments out of a film for some kind of reissue like this, more than likely you've lost that footage entirely. But it seems like there was a lot of footage they were able to restore because the 2016 restoration runs at 98, 98 minutes, with two minutes of playout music. That's the version that we have available today. Some, right. some sections were cut before the 1930 release and never seen by the general public, and they include the number by Nello Day set in the cabaret lobby and the segment of Grace Hayes singing My Lover. Um, and a 93-minute version cobbled together from a 65-minute negative and a 16-millimeter print used for the video cassette release of the film was released in 1983. Parts of the uncut original uncut version do still survive, but the Criterion Collection has put out the 98-minute version, which has the two minutes of playout music, and they put that out in 4K, including two Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons, as well as the stage uh, version and the 1933 short featuring Paul Whiteman and his band. So from a restoration standpoint, this movie's kind of a modern miracle today because they, they've had to cobble together from various sources. And I'm sure you noticed in the film, the changing levels of stock throughout the movie, like where the quality shift. Right. Definitely. Um, and so, but this is a, uh, you know, speaking as an attested to somebody who's done restoration or recovered lost film in and of itself and, or, or recovered like things that never, you never knew existed. Um, I think you can attest to the fact that restoring works of art like this or making sure that we keep track of them is a highly important uh, task. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things like whatever, when we look at the the problematic aspects of the film from a, a you know, modern perspective on something historic and, and things like we talked about in the review of the movie with, you know, the underlying racist things and, and that, um, you know, there is something to be said for, uh, retaining these historical works um, because it is worth studying, right? Like the way we're looking at it and looking at 
um, what we were doing wrong at the time, you know, right. <laughs> um, understanding, right. you know, yeah. those, those pieces of it. And two, just, you know, you don't want to lose something that took time and effort and is a part of the history of, of Hollywood or, or any other area, you know? Um, yeah. and especially as a documentarian, you know, I, any and all, you know, footage I can get from something that we're talking about footage, photos, whatever it is. Um, I want to get my hands on so we can make the, you know, tell the best story we can using as authentic uh, material as we can. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is something, it's unfortunate that that one scene was cut and lost. Um, I think his, it would be very interesting to see a scene in 1930 shot of a, a, a suicidal flute player. Um, what, what does that look like? Context. I think he just, I think it might just be Kent telling the story, but still I'm just like, what does a suicidal flute player, like, what does that mean? But right. You know, and we'll, it, it's we'll such an interesting know. thing to talk about in a movie in 1930, you know? So I well, do think yeah, there's I, a, yeah, there's something, you know, that I, I do kind of, I'm like, might be interested to see that if they could find it, but I'm sure it's gone. Like when they cut it for the re-release, yeah. they probably just were like, we're not like, they probably wouldn't have had the foresight to think we need to save this, you know? Oh no, they, they definitely did not. Um, MGM was actually the clumsiest with its materials because MGM lost lots of movies because they had studio fires. And, um, one film that we'll never see more than likely is London after midnight with Lon Chaney senior playing a fucked up looking vampire that we have images of. We have the stills of it and they've done recreations mm -hmm. of it through TCM with photo restoration, but it's not the same. Uh, right. it is, um, it is a shame that a lot of this art is lost due to non ability of foresight, but also I would argue that there's a lack of interest on the part of a lot of people to even bother to see these films. Folks like the True. Film Foundation and Martin Scorsese team up to rescue a lot of things, but that's only like one small segment of it. I think a big part of why The King of Jazz is such a unique rarity is that it is a film that probably wouldn't have existed in the form we see it today were it not for the beauty of film restoration. Um, and it's, it's a testament to the idea that we need to dig up what we can while we still have the time before things degrade because not all of the film that was made in that era is durable. In fact, most of it is not durable and it will degrade in quality and produce, amongst other things, vinegar syndrome, uh, right. which will ruin the quality of the film and make it impossible to run through a projector or scan for a digital print. So that's why you need to, you need to, if you are interested in art and you are interested in filmmaking at all, if you don't like old films of the era, whatever, that's one thing, but you should you should ideally support the concept and off, off, actively back up the, the concept of film restoration because digital technology is just as flimsy as degrading film. And there's yeah. no guarantee that your digital file is going to survive because you never know what's going to happen with a piece of technology that works off of a wire. Um, right. But well, and not on only that, that, but I mean, we don't, yeah. it's so new, right? Like if you think about it, relatively speaking, like the hard drives we have are, extremely new so we don't know what kind of long-term issues they could have you know we yeah. even um like we we got some um archival blu-ray discs to put some of the film transfers from um that we found for floating horses some of the 16 millimeter film we found casey riding um we transferred to these archival blu-rays that are supposed to last up to 500 years 
for the Casey Tibbs Rodeo Center Museum so they could have the physical prints as well as a digital transfer. Yeah. Um, but who knows if they'll actually last that long. I mean, they can make that well, claim, yeah. but there's no way they can, you know. Yeah, uh, there, there's, there's no, there's no way of telling how long a DVD or a Blu-ray is going to survive. Like, they, 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 like they, they can claim whatever they want, but the bottom line is, is a physical piece of material that will have a shelf life like anything else. The film that they've produced for a lot of these restorations, then then store them in proper temperatures, is said to last up to a hundred or two hundred or whatever years. But you know, even that's sort of a guesstimate to an extent. So it's not, it's not all. An, it's an exact science without having any definite answers. It's a very complicated process because you are dealing with a product. And also a lot of it has to do with the business realm. You know, the business of film restoration costs a lot of money. And unless you have a reason to have it exist, a studio is certainly not going to champion one of its archive titles that has no commercial value getting a restoration it deserves. My exactly. argument is... I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and that's the hard part, right? Is is it's all driven by revenue and what can we make money off of? And it does is there money in rest, restoring this? And it, a lot of times they just decide there isn't, you know. So I have a I have a solution, Aaron. Let the copyright lapse. Let it become public domain, and let somebody who gives a shit actually restore it. Right. Because no, and that would happen because you'll find somebody who's willing to look for a grant or something to to restore and preserve that media. Uh, where the studios won't. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's Disney films that clearly need some touch-up. Now, Disney does a better job than most of restoring its stuff, and Warner Brothers does lots of work in doing it. Like, actually, Warner Brothers is the best at it. Um, but Universal has done their fair share of it, but Universal has also made a lot of boo-boos lately, um, like not including the mono soundtrack on their 4K restoration of Psycho. Like, that's just the dumbest fucking thing ever. Like, I don't. I, how do you do that? Um, but I want to talk really quickly about Whiteman. Um, his role in jazz gets supplanted by swing music. Um, swing music, a different form of jazz, much more loose and in line with the improvisational, um, really does uh, uh, supplant Whiteman. He is prominent throughout films in the mid, early to mid-40s. Um, and he appears as himself in Rhapsody in Blue about the life and career of George Gershwin, uh, he appears in The Fabulous Dorsey, which is a biopic starring Jimmy Dorsey and Tommy Dorsey. Um, he appears in the as the band leader uh, in Thanks a Million in 1935, which is a couple years after. And the movie Strike Up the Band as himself. Uh, and in the Paramount Pictures short film The Lamberville Story. And um, he goes into radio. Like I said, he worked for, amongst other people, the Burns and Allen program. Um, he... Uh, uh, he also did uh, was a summer substitute for Paul Whiteman Presents, which was a show that substitute for Edgar Bergen, uh, sponsored by Chase and Sanborn Coffee. Um, he uh, he uh, would end up dying of a heart attack in 1967 at the age of 77 in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Um, his legacy really is how many jazz standards he did introduce that then would go on to inspire other people um wang wang blues alone was covered by glenn miller duke ellington benny goodman and joe king oliver's dixie land dixie syncopators in 1926 and um hot lips was recorded by ted lewis and his band horace height and his brigadier orchestra and django reinhardt so and herb alpert and al hurt who are famous for the spanish flea 
were influenced by the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, particularly the solo work of Henry Buse, the trumpet player, um, and his solo in Rhapsody in Blue. So the the orchestra that he formed, regardless of its, regardless of how we wrestle with the label King of Jazz, which shouldn't even be a wrestling act. The bottom line is he doesn't deserve that title rightfully. However, right. he cannot be discredited or discarded as an actual influence in jazz. Um, and from all account, a very, very inclusive person who, for the most part, tried to do what he could to break some barriers to allow musicians who really invented the material um, to flourish down the line. Um, and one of his legacies that's interesting that I'll bring up as the before we wrap this up is that if you watch the film Ma Rainey Blues, um, the movie ultimately becomes about the theft of African-American music by the white man. And it's interesting that at the very end of the movie, when they are playing a version of the Chadwick Boseman character song that he wrote, the figure at the head of the orchestra looks suspiciously like Paul Whiteman. And the recording style sounds suspiciously like a Paul Whiteman or a Phil Ritz. So mm -hmm. Whiteman has had his own reckoning with that title, and it's come into the form of interpretation on film for a rightful subject to discuss. I will make the bold argument to maybe cut him some slack, um, especially when discussing mm -hmm. him. Um, but again... You're dealing with an art form that has been taken time and time again from the people who created it, and right. you can't ignore that. If you try to ignore it, you're part of the problem. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and I think too, like the the historical context of it, you know, knowing that he did make some effort, you know, while it's important to acknowledge, you know, you wonder, um, could he have done more? How hard did he really try? But I mean, we really just can't know the full extent of it. Yeah. Um, well, I, imagine. I mean, well, I mean, and keep in mind, we having discussed this are Paul Whiteman amateurs. We don't read the biographies as thoroughly or we haven't read a biography on a period. We're going right. off of <laughs> what we have available to us directly from the Internet, um, sourced properly from places that have a proper source. But we also have uh, the film in front of us to look at and a film called The King of Jazz with Paul Whiteman as the star you have to talk about that label and what it means. Um, exactly. And I'm glad yeah. that, and I'm glad that of anybody that I could have to talk about this, Aaron, it would be you um, <laughs> because we had some fun with the content. We also learned some important lessons and we talked about film restoration, which was a very important thing to discuss um, as well as music on film. Um, I will say like, I already talked about concert films, but do you think of any, can you think of anything that you've seen in King of Jazz that carries into films that you see today? Oh man, I wasn't prepared for this question. Um, <laughs> probably with more lead time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure there's, there's some visual elements. Um, I mean, just, you know, the, the music video, the technique of like, we're going to pre-record this and then play a recording in, in the studio while we do the mo you know go through the motions is very much the the playbook for modern music videos so right. um and a lot of that is just to spare the band from having to play their song you know a hundred times while you get it from every angle but um yeah. look not only are we not actors but we're not fucking doing that shit so there right 
And so, I mean, and obviously that's like, that may be born more out of necessity than out of, you know, being inspired by those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those, uh, uh, that style of like the band sounds better, you know, recording it in a studio and bringing the recording here, um, which Which, is, you know, absolutely true. So yeah. yeah, And it was a keen insight. It was a keen insight on his part to be like, look, it's going to sound better if you do it this way and not try to do it live on the set. Like, right. And especially again, for that time. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Who was like most people probably weren't thinking about that um, in that same kind of regard. So it is it is interesting to see that you know those considerations were happening that early on, and that we've carried that over um, or carried that throughout history really when when thinking about creating content with music and how it's integrated with our mm-hmm. our other media. Yep, and um, uh, and I will say that another thing is is that the two strip Technicolor in this film. Um, Obviously, it led the paved the way for the full Technicolor experience that we would get first with three strip and then the full, and then the uh, progression of color in film today is far beyond anything even Technicolor could have dreamed of. Now we still don't get the Technicolor look to this day, really, because it's a it's a dye process on physical film, and so therefore digital is only going to be a pale imitation by comparison. Uh, right. One thing I will bring up, two-strip Technicolor has appeared in films within the last 20 years, and it came in the form of Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Um, and given some of the fil- song selections in King of Jazz and what you see in The Aviator, it's clear that Martin Scorsese watched King of Jazz and saw the two-strip Technicolor and how to work with it because the first portion of the aviator is two strip technicolor or designed to look like that. Then it moves into three, three strip technicolor and then it moves into the full spectrum. So Mm -hmm. color is a very important legacy that this film um, flourishes out. And if you watch like any, let's be honest, Nicholas Windig Refn has made color his specialty, regardless of what you think of his films. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and also, you know, you know, a Tron movie looks as good as it does because you know what to do with color in a special effects realm, which this is also a special effects movie. So right. the techniques the techniques in this film for an experiment, basically, have far-reaching effects um, beyond just the simple matter of Paul Whiteman standing in front of his band and waving his stick. Um, and one last right, note exactly. for Paul White. One last note for Paul Whiteman, by the way. In 1928, he did a recording of Old Man River with Paul Robeson, which is a very, very influential recording. And that vocal selection was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2006. So we'll always have the legacy of white men working with artists like Robeson to carry on this legacy of early jazz and whatnot. So. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for coming around. Really yeah, quickly, you, tell Zach. people. Yeah, re- yeah, I, 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 I loved having you here. Really quickly, tell people where they can find out about the Blasting Room. Uh, if you visit blastingroomfilm.com or Blasting Room Film on Instagram, uh, you can see photos and updates. Uh, we've been a little scarce this last month. Things have been kind of crazy, uh, but we're hoping to pick it up. We've got some new news coming up, um, so that should make things a little more active in the coming weeks. So. Awesome. Beautiful. I'm, I'm excited to see it and I'm excited to get back on set with you with this. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode of yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Uh, you could find more information about us in the tag at the end of the episode on the next episode, we will be going to Vincent Minnelli territory with, um, a, a, a newcomer to the show, but an old, old friend of mine, 
Um, but until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.